everybody and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas and I'm here with Aubrey Loveless. Danielle Renee. All right, gang. Go check out Mignolaverse.com. Mignolaverse is featuring an article about a character that we're talking about this week, the Wendigo. And it's not spoilery either, so you can check it out. It's written by our listener feedback contributor, Tom Hardman. And so that's a really good look at that character and the folklore surrounding that. I want to make sure that I plug the Hellboy Day in March. Don't forget to go to your local comic book store and ask them to order all those items so they can participate in Hellboy Day and you can get all those free goodies. Also, keep your eye on the Mike Mignola's Art Facebook page at the beginning of December for the raffle. There's going to be an awesome raffle going on. And it's going to be for a really good cause, and there are some great prizes. So keep your eye on that page. Give them a follow if you're not already on there. We're going to talk about some listener feedback. Mark Tweedo chimed in on our reading recommendations. By the way, I'll echo the recommendation for By Chance or Providence by Becky Cloonan. I like that book so much, I bought several copies and gave them to friends I knew would love it. Noah? The new color edition from Image Comics is readily available, too. I love Becky Cloonan. She's awesome. She does Batman and Punisher, and she's done a lot of really cool stuff. So um, I'll definitely check that out. He goes on. Some other recommendations. The Creep by John Arcudi and Jonathan Case. Uzumaki by Ito. Beast of Burden by Evan Dorkin and Jill Thompson. Harrow County by Colin Bunn and Tyler Crook, which have library editions now. And The Marquis Inferno by Guy Davis, which is incredible. I've seen a little bit of the Marquee by Guy Davis. It looks awesome. I was reading that it's not finished yet. It, it never was finished. But those those And those books go for a lot of money, too. So I might wait on that. Jerry Turnbull gave us some feedback. The Baba Yaga, Hecate, Rasputin, and others aren't villains in any shape or form. They're trying to guide mankind into its next stage of evolution. They are doing what they were born to do. Garagosh, on the other hand, is a total baddie. So we had mm. talked about we had talked about that a little bit of last week about how some of the characters are not really villains. They they've kind of um, they're kind of outside that agenda. Kane Gray finally got a copy of the Midnight Circus. So uh, you can go back to episode five and listen to us nerds talk about that if you want to. We got some feedback on Plague of Frogs. Dan on the Discord forum. He enjoyed our discussion about Abe's origin, and he said that for a long time he couldn't wrap his head around the whole time paradox. Right. And he said he really liked our interpretations, and he said it reminded him of a similar event with Hellboy and Makoma, right? With that whole Hellboy oh, yeah. and Makoma thing. Sure. I, I really liked that. We had some feedback on War on Frogs. Mark Tweedell said, you spoke a little bit about the thought boxes in the Roger issue. We're so talking about these thought boxes. I feel like there's an aspect to this that you missed. This was an issue written for Herb Trempe, and I can't help but think that John Arcudi deliberately wrote it in a style that evoked the era of the comics that Trempe is well known for. Sure. Due to deadline issues, Guy Davis had to finish the issue, and I feel like this aspect got lost in translation to a degree. The homage might have been more overt if Trempe's style came through more. So it might have been like a throwback story, you know what I mean, if they had stuck more with those. A little homage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's fine and a valid interpretation and all of that. Like I said, <laughs> like I said before, I have a totally irrational outlook on this and I recognize it as such. I just don't plan on doing anything about it. So there you go. It's like you hated it even back during the day. It's not, like I hate, it's not even about hatred. It's just like, okay, whatever. It's a whatever kind of a thing. Dan, Guardian Ansel, and I were also talking about it on the Discord. And they were talking about, you know, there are some thought squares in Seed of Destruction. And uh, yeah. they were saying it's kind of weird to go back to that. And I was actually thinking, like, 
maybe in a year or two or whenever we do Hellboy in Hell, it might be cool after Hellboy in Hell to come back and look at, look, at that, and yeah. look at Seed of Destruction again and just see how all of that has evolved. I posted our teaser image that said, pull out your back issues, trades, omnibus, because we're reading the Black Flame. At Griffin88 on Twitter said, dies under a mountain of trade copies trying to pull out her issues. <laughs> it's fine. I've always been sure I'd die that way. Crushed by a mountain of paper goods. Yeah. Kevin Alford simply responded, death. (laughs) Ryan Bolton said, this was the story that I first jumped in on the BPRD train. Sucked me right in. Can't wait to listen to y'all's takes on it. And Ryan also found some skeleton wine and he read it as Skellington. Skellington. Because that's what Daniel wants to say. (laughs) Nice. And Benny Decker said, I am ready to talk about the Black Flame. We had some feedback. We had a Hey You Damn Guys oh, good. from our friend Brian Levy. He says, Hey You Damn Guys, first and foremost, I want to make it clear that I am 100% here for Danielle's freaky mystical tangents. <laughs> <laughs> Reading these books as a teenager got me into all that stuff. Yes. Now my friends all know me as the spookiest guy they know. <laughs> These books straight up turned me goth. You know, I'm all about the holographic nature of reality, witch stuff, and other mystic secrets. Hell yeah. But I digress. I'm mainly writing to chime in on how good the description of Liz's grief in that third chapter. Yeah. It's so relatable. Those expressions, the body language, her wanting to be in his room and to sleep in his bed. It's just so much more believable than what you get in most other stories that deal with losing a friend or family member. Our guys aren't getting over it after just a few scenes. They'll carry the stuff with them in this reality-specific rich way that makes the comics so easy to love. Not to plug myself too hard, but I wrote a piece about why Roger's character is great for Mignolaverse. And so there's an article on there called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Homunculus. That's great. And so now that we've read The Universal Machine, it won't be spoilery for y'all to go and check that out. Well, I absolutely agree with all that stuff that you said. Um, I think that... Yeah, it's really well done. It is very rich and it is very complicated and nuanced. And that's what I think all of us end up really appreciating out of these characters. So, yeah, I I would love to read that uh, article. I think everybody should go do that. I plan on doing that right after we finish recording this. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going, yeah. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This letter isn't short, but just one last thing. Johan calls Roger a mensch after he learns of his death. And John says that that means human. It does mean that in German. But I'm sure your other Jewish listeners could tell you that it means a little bit more than that in Yiddish. Mensch in Yiddish means something closer to salt of the earth. Your favorite grandparent was a mensch. Your guidance counselor who changed your life was a mensch. The store owner who gives a homeless guy a free sandwich with no expectation of the homeless guy paying him back, that's a mensch. Giving, loving, gregarious, and warm. It's one of those quick German Yiddish words that has a whole paragraph of context within it. Anyway, hope you find that interesting. Wow. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving and keep doing what you're doing, especially when what you're doing is sticking it to misogynist, racist, and xenophobes. <laughs> Much love, Brian Levy. Yeah, wow. I really liked yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, we talk about nuance a lot, so that's that fits in right perfectly. I really appreciate that. Thank you for writing in to, to share that with us. That's really, really, yeah, rich yeah. with context, and we 
you know, us stupid Americans are kind of lacking in our knowledge of that sometimes. Our maybe our our schooling wasn't so broad <laughs> right. in other languages. Let me or just type it cultures. into Google Translate. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's just like you know we we do really want to hear about all of this you know different culture and different so if you have a deeper context for these these different ideas and words and stuff please do share it with us because that is really wonderful it gives that so much more it gives that one little scene yeah he just says one word and and now knowing all of this this additional stuff like that just gives it so much more power it's great and that little line, and also had that little dialogue. Yeah. Whenever they do that, I really like that detail too. Now knowing was, the yeah. context of that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it may, yeah. he maybe he was saying that, knowing that maybe no one else in the room would even catch his context, but uh, he yeah. was saying it to himself because right. it was so important for him to at least verbalize it. I love that. Like, yeah. That is so great. Anyway, Ross Radke and I were chatting a little bit on Twitter. He said it's probably a good thing I listen to your podcast while driving to and from work because I have a lot of comments. <laughs> but thankfully for you guys, I forget half of them by the time I get home. Oh, no. I don't mind sharing my comments, but please don't feel obligated because I'm going to ramble a bit. Black Flame is probably the run when BPRD really clicked for me as its own book with a unique voice and not just a Hellboy spinoff for when Mignola was taking too long. <laughs> the balance of absurd comedy and tragic horror that Arcudi strikes is very different than Mignola's more dry sense of humor. It's one of the few comics that made me laugh out loud. And it's so nice to hear other fans talk about these weird moments. I love with Pope and the Frogs. And we talked a lot about about those last week. I, I also have had several moments during the story we're about to talk about where I'm, I am literally laughing out loud. Yeah. I'm laughing out loud like as I'm reading. And that, that doesn't usually happen. So that's really... You yeah. had a couple exclaims when you were reading. I was like, <laughs> what are you saying no shit about? Yeah. <laughs> And he also had a confession. He said he wasn't originally a huge fan of Mignola or Guy Davis's artwork when he first saw it, compared to other superhero comics I read as a kid. And it made me think of, you know, the first time I saw Mignola's art, I was reading X-Force. Remember X-Force in the 90s and Rob Liefeld and the Levi's commercial and all that? See, I'm the opposite. I I immediately gravitated towards these two art styles, whereas I'm, I'm normally like, eh, about art. So this is... But I remember, Not art in general, just like comic book art. Yeah, but I remember I was reading Liefeld's X-Force and I was into all that like big, right. flashy art stuff. Sure. And Mignola did an issue, one of the early issues, I think eight, is Mignola pencils. It's like a flashback. Right. Yeah. And I remember not really digging it, you know? And I think that it maybe just wasn't right for that story. I don't know. And I think like I had to... Well, l- let me talk a little bit more about Ross because Ross well, talks about... Go ahead, Aubrey. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, no, I know what you mean because I, I think the first thing I saw was... Uh, I know it was an X Factor cover that he did um, back before when it was the yeah, original X Men. I think I and, know what you're talking about. And I was just like, mm, you know. And then, but um, I've actually seen like just the straight pencils and inks of some of that stuff on the Magnolia art fan page. Yeah. And and I'm sitting there looking at that and I'm looking at the color version and I'm all like, okay, somewhere somebody dropped the ball here because this ink work looks great. And right. had I seen that as a kid, maybe I would have had a better appreciation for it. See, for me, it's uh, my exposure to Mignola started with Hellboy and, and all the stuff. And my exposure to Guy Davis started with BPRD. And then I looked at all the other stuff he did for... Um, uh, Guillermo de Toro I can't say his name it's, he has such a beautiful name and I feel so bad for totally jacking up his name Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. and he does all this amazing stuff and I you know uh, both Mignola and Guy Davis' stuff is just so expressive and it's sometimes it's really loose and sometimes it's yeah. really specific and sometimes it's but to me and my 
I have a very specific aesthetic as an artist myself. And so I, I really fell for that stuff immediately. That was something that I thought was really lacking in graphic novel design and in, in storytelling in general in the, you know, in the, in comics. And so I was like, oh, this storytelling is so different and so specific to my interests. Right. And I really think that this is in it. And these are artists that you go back and you look at the stuff that they like and they've studied all kind of classical historical artists and they've studied all kinds of weird occult shit. And they're, you know, they're coming from almost a different vein of, of, of art. And that's something that I was really excited to see. So that's something that is just a little... Yeah. Aside, and if you're yeah. going for um, sequential art, uh-huh. in sequential mm-hmm. art, there is, you know, the mainstream stuff, and then there's that weird underground shit, and these guys manage to be like, well, we're underground mainstream, so it's right. just a very, yeah. I really appreciate that a lot. Well, I know, like, for me, it's just, you know, I guess as a young teen, it was all, like, I, I really liked that flashy stuff that was start- sure. starting to come out in the 90s, and I you know, it was later in life that I was actually able to start really re- appreciating it because, and it's not like I didn't like different. No, it's just it's art. all about it's where just, you're coming from. Yeah, it's just of like course. when it came to the comic books and just like the whole superhero yeah. style of flashy. I think art. it's just about but, your um, exposure and your habits. But and then that's, um, you know, you know, because like I guess I came from like re- you know watching like Spider Man and his amazing friends. Sure, well, I was yeah. a big fan of the X Men like cartoon that. when I was a kid. Right. Oh man. So you know, I mean, I don't know. It's just like somewhere, somewhere else. Like I started noticing art in a different way. Yeah. Sure. And it was able to start clicking. And well, different. and we all come together, and that's what yeah. the podcast is for, to yeah. expose mm-hmm. one another to, to different stories and yeah. different artists. And so that's, I think, something that has obviously had a great effect on all of us. But anyway, sorry, Johnny, we're going to continue. No, well, I, I just like this comparison that Ross makes because he says, some of my all-time favorite music like Primus or the Mars Volta took a few listens for me to embrace, not because it wasn't great, oh. but because I didn't understand the language yet. I feel like as children, we are conditioned to like certain things based on popular ideas of skill or talent, usually things that are overproduced, overpolished, predictable, and ultimately boring. Eclecticism is a virtue I have consciously nurtured, intentionally seeking out books, music, food that I have never tried before, and giving things a second or third chance. And I really like this idea because awesome, yeah. we, we've talked about this a lot. with And Ross and I actually talked about deer hoof a little bit. I was going to say, you have this yeah. deer hoof story. Yeah. Yeah, deer hoof. They talk about making your ears bigger. And I feel like Mignola makes your eyes bigger, yeah. you know, in a way. Yeah. Kind of. Well, where was um, it? That was like a behind the scenes thing with. Yeah. Uh, it was what is like, his name? Oh, man. Greg Saunier, yeah, the the drummer, he's a big influence of mine. Well, doesn't he have like a doctorate in drumming or something? He has a master's degree in music composition. That I think, is or awesome. Like and that. you were telling me you were watching something where he said you have to make your ears bigger, and that's actually something that you've you've uh, exposed me to a lot of music that I had never listened to, yeah. like Deerhoof. And now Deerhoof is like one of my favorite all time. I mean, I love everything they do, and so that's kind of my ears got way bigger when I started listening to them, and now I'm able to go back and listen to some stuff that I initially was like. I don't know about this, and now I'm I'm listening to it just like just right. like this, just like he's saying is um I can really appreciate it, and so yeah, I I love everything that you're saying there, man. You go back a couple of times and expose yourself to it over and over again to try and broaden your your horizons a little. I think yeah. that's great. I want to say uh, appreciate the Primus shout out. Love me some Primus. <laughs> yeah, sure. no, I was and, telling. Um, I was gonna say every time I like listen to like 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 Caesar Cheese, it's like I always hear something new every time. Yeah, and I was telling Ross that we went on the oh, we went to yeah, the ghost, saw it live. We saw it live, Caesar Cheese, and he was he saw that same tour. Nice. And we talked about Tim uh, Tim Alexander a little bit too. Oh man. Cool. And he says, I wish more people were willing to venture so far outside their comfort zone that they couldn't find their way back. Guy Davis is one of my art heroes. Obviously, his creature design is incredible. 
especially when things transform. But beyond monsters, his loose style imbues everything with a sense of motion that feels cinematic. Yeah. He and Arcudi control timing so well in the book, hitting every emotion without the aid of a music score. Have you ever watched a film with the sound turned off? So much emotion is communicated by the music that we overlook the artifice of the acting and the cinematography. While I've been a comic book fan my entire life, Hellboy and the BPRD are the books that made me want to seriously pursue comics as a profession myself. And the last thing that he wanted to talk about is the frogs. The horrible thing about them that sets them apart from mindless zombies is the implication that they still retain some of their memories of their human lives. And some are clearly smart enough to manipulate various human cults. Yet there seems to be an overwhelming collective frog instinct to do these horrible things that overrides human rationale. They remind me of dogs or birds in their level of intelligence, social, capable of emotion, yet somehow not sentient enough to be held accountable for their actions. I'll let that be for now. And then he also said that he liked our music. So oh, thanks for thank thanks you. for listening to, to our music, Ross. That was one of the best Hey You Damn Guys ever. That was a good one. Yeah, and he was like, you don't have to read all this, but I, I, uh, sure, I read yeah. most of it because it was really good input. Yeah, um, it's excellent. Picking up on the idea of uh, watching a movie without uh, you know just a soundtrack. Oh, right. The first Superman DVD, Superman the movie, when it was first released on DVD, they had a um, score-only track. And so you can just watch the whole movie with a John Williams score. Oh, wow. It nice. is pretty awesome to watch it. That like is that. a good score, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ishmael Valerius said, You people made me read that story arc of BPRD. Thank you all. So I, I wonder oh. if he had not never read it before oh, or if okay. going back and rereading it. Tom Hardman said, On the topic, no one thinks of themselves as a villain. And he linked... This Mitchell and Webb skit. So Mitchell and Webb are a comedy duo from England, I think. Mm. And if you Google Mitchell and Webb, Nazis are bad. It's this really funny. It's only like a two minute thing. Um, I'll have to show you guys afterwards. But it's like these two. They're like mock Nazi soldiers. Like they're not exactly Nazis, but they have a similar uniform. And they're like doing all their plans. And one of the guys is like. Have you ever noticed we have skulls on our hats? <laughs> he's like, are we the baddies? Are we the bad guys? And then the other guy, he's like trying to still do the plans. He's like, and so we're going to do this. And he's showing him the map. And he's like, who would put skulls? Like, what is the design? And they just keep going That's on, great. slowly realizing that they're the bad guys. Anyway, it's a really funny skit. Sure. You should Google that. Jerry Turnbull said, another great episode. The listener feedback is as interesting as the read-along. Love the Zinko boardroom stuff. For some reason, I kept thinking of The Apprentice with a certain president. Both Landis Pope and that real fella are head cases. Pope's trophy room is amazing. My favorite bit was seeing Von Klempt lying ignominiously on his side. (laughs) Professor O'Donnell is awesome. You get the impression if they had only listened to him, things could have turned out differently. Yeah. Also, I would love a copy of the translation of the Hyperborean language. We were trying to figure yeah. that sure. out. Yeah. And so if Jerry's saying that there's not one, he would know. I he think would, he, yeah, he, 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 would he would know, know if there was one. Linguist. Yeah. Do we have any do we have any linguistic experts listening in on this? Yes, linguists, get on this, yeah. please. He said that he was also reading it as it came out. Chapter two was such a shock. The final page of that issue is so touching where they just focus in on yeah. the remains of Roger. Sure. Things start to get really serious with the arrival of Cothahem. I don't think I'd seen anything on that scale before in comics. Literally awesome. And then he also mentions one thing I like about the listener feedback. If Sometimes I forget stuff. Like, I mean to talk about things, and then I, just when we're talking, I just right, forget no, about totally. it. I set myself up to talk about this, and then I forgot about it. But he says, uh, Sean Chin makes his move. So remember when Roger found that little thing, and then they he found that little implement, and he pulled it out of the wall? Right, right. before that happened, they fought this monster, 
that had taken Johan's ectoplasm and the monster was saying, Shanshin, I will I will get you back right. or I'll have my revenge. So Shanshin had to use that implement to destroy that monster. Oh yeah. And then we saw that shaman guy yeah. with it at the end of the Black Flame, Liz had that vision. Sure. So that's kind of drawing that connection. Yeah. So that shaman is absolutely you know, maybe that's that Shanshin. So cool. Eddie White says Von Klempt is such a little weasel. I've been waiting for decades to see him get got. <laughs> Edgar Sid said, awesome episode as always, guys. I had some thoughts on the dynamic between the frogs and the black flame that differs from Danielle's. I would have been awing the little frogs' quirks if it wasn't for the War of Frogs issue four that centered on how the frogs were evolving in intelligence. Right. The little quirks in that story had me empathizing with them just until I saw the sheer horror that was their afterlife. The face that Johan had made was more than appropriate, not to mention the grotesque shrines that they make out of human remains, sullied any empathy I would have for the frogs. Well, I think they do. They they maintain enough intelligence to be able to car- carry out whatever thing it is that they're carrying out, but I think that they're sort of hijacked in a way because it's almost compulsive, the things that they're doing, and they're, right. they become something else, and, and it's... Yeah, their afterlife is scary to us, but to them, they're like all pumped about it, right? So, you know, who's to say? When it came to the Black Flame, I found him to be quite a pathetic man. I felt that stunt with him walking into the boardroom all decked out in the Black Flame persona was him swinging his metaphorical dick around, yeah. trying to look as cool or as powerful as he feels. I, I actually laughed out loud when, uh, yeah. when, he, when I read that comment. Yeah. <laughs> He believes he's in, in control of the frogs and has a false sense of security. And it shows up again when his lead scientist shows signs of hesitation. I agree with John in saying that he was not sorry for his actions and is only apologizing because it wasn't him leading that destruction and holding all that power. That scene with the frogs correcting him by saying the power belonged to Cothlehem alone was very bittersweet. At one end, it was like, yeah, screw you, Nazi moron. You can't go around messing with shit you don't understand. It was definitely a reap what you sow moment. He was left in the dirt and he's sorry for what he had lost and not what he stole. I find that type of behavior parallels cheaters and abusers. Anyway, it felt bittersweet because although he got what was coming to him, it illustrated the severity of the situation. The team wasn't just up against some Nazis with a death wish anymore. They were up against a much bigger, monstrous foe. P.S. The gentleman that you may have been mentioning, who was a former neo-Nazi and who works in reforming current white supremacists, teaching people how to look out for dog whistles and how to get people radicalized, is Christian Piccoli. Oh, okay. Piccolini. Is that right? I don't know. I, I I would have to go back, but yeah, probably. I mean, I'm I'm sure that there are, there have to be there has to be more than one person doing this. But I mean, that's that's more than likely right. what, who I was talking about. I don't. I'm pretty sure that's the one I was sure. thinking of. Yeah, um, I've watched so many of these documentaries now, and I had no idea just how far this insidious reach. You know, it's 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 really it's really out of control. And but yeah, it's not unfathomable that that would be the guy I was talking about. I'm pretty sure that's who the guy was, but I'm not 100%. Uh, I remember reading an article saying that this guy was the basis for Edward Norton's character in um, American History Oh, X. really? Oh, wow. wow. I didn't and know so that. I read the article, and then there was a link to a video, and then I watched his video, and I'm just like, right. whoa, this is... I can't even remember the names yeah. of the, the documentaries I was watching, but it was like, I watched like three of them in the span of a couple of weeks, and I was like, mm. holy shit, this is intense, man. And it's also nice to know that, you know, some people can't come back from that. Drew Campbell said, I think that the ball in Roger's room is more of a reference to the dream he had of being a real boy, playing with a round toy more than the little girl's ball from Revival. And so I like that. I like that interpretation as well. Jen Nikla said, first, very belated birthday, Aubrey. Thank you. Yay. He said, second, Mr. Pope was mentioned in Wake the Devil. I forgot it myself, but then I got it on the reread. 
No wonder he turned out a nut job with a last name like this. And uh, <laughs> But I went back to look at Wake the Devil. I couldn't find that reference. So let me know. I just kind of skimmed it. It was late last night. So, But I tried to look for that. He says, I want to say so much about Baba Yaga, but that has to wait until you catch up. But I think... I disagree with the interpretation that she's a force of nature mm. and would instead proclaim that she wants to be one. Like mm. I said, we'll have to wait. If, the, if there's additional material that right. broadens this perspective into, of course, I'm, I'm excited to read it and I'm very willing to expand my whatever opinion yeah. about that. But that's, I'm just working off what I've got to go on. Sure. So. Same. <laughs> he said, otherwise, there isn't much to say about this one other than Roger, no, would have been a better title. Aww. The Aww. Black Flame also started a lot of things I grow to dislike about the BPRD, Mr. Mysterious, and Mustache being one. But it comes after Stuff I Adore, Garden of Souls being one. So until next week. Also, Danielle is right. People who cry about their childhood, if a bunch of stories are the best thing that happened to you, then you should overthink your life choices and your life in general. <laughs> well, it's like, look, I there are a lot of things that are great about the stories that we love as children, and there are a lot of things that gotta go. And if you're not willing to amend your, your opinions as your life continues then what is the fucking point of being alive even like right. you, <laughs> yeah growing and changing and expanding you know is like the whole point if you're if you're just gonna stop at some point and just get stuck it's like what is even the point yeah I mean, and i mean i i don't want to get too off topic but i was thinking about this too and i think like you know yeah comics are made for everybody and adults are probably a large per- percent of the people that buy them which is great but mm-hmm. for the most part it's for kids sure. it's it's supposed to be for yeah. kids and it's supposed to be for kids to be inspired in the face of what kids are like is ever changing well stories that are for children are for children and then there are stories that are for adults and yeah. that's for adults and that's fine and then there are stories for teenagers who are making that transition or whatever and it's like it kind of reminds me of uh, the new uh, Shiva reboot where people losing their shit over the fact that uh, <laughs> they they changed the way she looked or they changed you know I haven't seen the new Shira, and I used to watch the old Shira as a kid, and that's the thing is, like, I enjoyed it as a kid, but I'm not really, um, you know, it's just it is what yeah. it is. I mean, it's yeah. adapting it for a new audience. Yeah, and a then, lot of people think they made it better. Yeah, and so then, it's hey, you know, I mean, if you go back and watch the old stuff, it's like whoa. Yeah, I had, bad, I had <laughs> some I mean, bad taste there. No. Sure. Well, no, and I haven't seen it yet either. I but, I do plan on watching it. I have seen the character designs mm-hmm. that people are up in arms over, and I gotta say, I think they look great. And it's just like, you so, know, I mean, it's just like, you know, whether you don't like it or don't like it, the original she still exists. So right. you can always go back and, go back and watch it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, going off of what you're what you're saying is not even just about ex- exclusion, but if you're going to exclude if you're going to exclude someone on the basis of gender or race or whatever, that's gross. You're gr- you're being gross. Stop it. I posted a picture of Roger's room of all the little trinkets in there and all the Easter eggs. And at Griffin88 just posted a gif of a sad stitch from Lilo and Stitch. Oh, the, no. the, the little <laughs> stitch crying. Oh. And then Drew Campbell said, looks like some great material for Skeleton Crew to work with. Oh, and I would love to see Skeleton Crew make some of those replicas. Mark Tweedell said, however... Skeleton crew has their work cut out for them if they're going to recover it from that crevasse that it fell into. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mark Tweedell also said, you called the picture of Cloacina a poster in the podcast. I think of it as a sketch by Roger himself. I don't oh, know why, but I imagine wow. him to be a very active sketcher. And all those pictures on the walls were drawn by him. And I really like that. And I, I don't know That's why I said... That's great. I don't know why I said poster. It's no, not but, like you can go buy a poster well, of Well, you might be able to. I don't know. I mean, but you know what? That's canon now. 
That's that's canon. Yeah. yeah. No. He sketched that for sure. I mean, it's poster size, so you can still refer it to as a poster. Hey, yeah. Uh, drawn poster. There you go. Hand-drawn poster. Yeah. And he also said those two pages, those two um, wordless pages with Liz going into his room, he said, this pair of pages remains my favorite moment of the Hellboy universe to date. Wow, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Matt Strackbean, who at, at the letter hack on Twitter, he's um, very popular in the Hellboy community. He would write in, okay, so when the issues were coming out, they have like a letter column. And right after this, Mark Strackbean was writing in every month, and he would end all his letters with, kill the Black Flame. Whoa. Because he was so <laughs> mad about the death of Roger, and so he, he commented on Twitter, kill the Black Flame. <laughs> He's a great guy. We'll, we'll get more to Matt later, because he, he has some really cool stuff that he contributes to the series as well. Lastly, on Discord, we talked about music for the team. Nobody talked about the different music for the different team members, what they would listen to. Tom Lee said, Roger listens to whatever his authority figure is listening to. Oh. And so the and so Guardian Ansel said, so what does Daimyo listen to then? <laughs> and I said, for some reason, I imagine him listening to CCR, Credence uh, Clearwater Revival. Oh, I don't know okay. why. I don't well, know. You know. Maybe I know because why. of the whole. He's, uh, he's in the jungle a lot. And basically yeah. any movie you ever see about <laughs> Vietnam has at least two CCR songs in it, like just by default. Right. So, so maybe that's just a stereotype. Well, he said, um, he said, uh, Guardian said uh, he can imagine Daimyo listening to. Born have on you the ever, Bayou. No, have you ever seen the rain? Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good one. No, that's that's not bad. Uh, I would, oh man, why, I don't know why, but I've got him listening to like garbage. I think that he's a real surpriser. <laughs> I think that it would be something totally you wouldn't expect. Man, I love garbage. I was thinking, and for Johan, like I was wondering if he would be into any of the industrial stuff, like like, for, like Bromstein. And I was thinking more like Kraftwerk or KMFDM oh, yeah. or something like that. But I don't know. He was a little older. We see in this one, right. we see like a flashback of him. He was kind of an older guy, so Maybe. I don't really know. Maybe a jazz. Maybe he's like some some of the Ludwig von Beethoven. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. we've already put, but we've already put what's his name in that box. Well, the, Abe. Hey, they can connect that way. He's a classical Asher. Well, yeah. maybe maybe Abe's more of a Mozart guy, and yeah. they they they, <laughs> they argue. <laughs> but uh, piggybacking on that, Jerry Turnbull did find the thread where they talked about the what Hellboy would listen to, and some guy was like, "Well." Hellboy is a teenager inside, so he might listen to some 90s stuff, 90s grunge stuff. Oh, okay. And I also think about Johnny Cash and Tom Waits. For sure. And then Mignola, that's where Mignola commented, and he said... Well, we talked about this last time, that, that he had said that Tom Waits was right on the nose, right? Right. Well, Mignola says, Hellboy's not an inner child, unless you're talking about the movies. Uh, that's yeah. a different version of Hellboy. So I think he nicks the 90s stuff, but he did say he did agree with Johnny Cash Waits, and Tom Waits. So. Sure. So, yeah, that's cool. Johnny Cash. Well, for sure. I mean, Daimyo would end up being a Johnny Cash guy, too, by that. Yeah. By that um, well, I mean, logic. I, could, I mean, I could see, like, Hellboy, because he's been around since the 40s. You know, I think he would have sure. some... I would hope he would have some appreciation for some of the 90s stuff, but he's probably been... He's seen, like, every genre. I think <laughs> yeah. maybe where I'm coming yeah. from is I want to sit these people down <laughs> and make them listen to some music and see what they like and see what they don't like. And how do but we, they're not real people. I can't do that. And you know, how do we know some of them aren't like hip hop and R and B fans as sure. well? You know? Right. Absolutely. There's a lot of good shit. I can see Daimyo being a Wu Tang clan fan. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I have some feedback also 
because there were two things that I forgot to talk about, but I think some of the listener feedback picked that up. So Liz's mysterious friend, the guy in the red with the snakes and all that stuff, when Johan found that file folder, did you see that? I posted it on on uh, Facebook I, and Instagram. I saw that, yeah. There was a picture of a mysterious man moments before an explosion in New York City, and it looks like that same guy. So he had been, you know, alluded to in that file folder. And then one thing that none of the readers picked up, I posted it online, when Liz is talking to that mysterious guy, in one panel, there's a statue of the Black Goddess behind him. Yeah. Did you guys see that? You know yeah, what? And I, I saw your post. I had even caught that on my initial reading, and I was like, oh, I gotta say something about yeah. that. And I totally fucking forgot. Me too, yeah. So, yeah. Totally did not catch it, so I totally posted <laughs> it on the, on the, on I, the I social media. I say something about that. And then the last thing that I forgot to talk about was the cupping therapy. So when was that? Was that in the Black Flame that we saw Daimyo getting the cupping therapy? And so cupping therapy is an ancient form of alternative medicine in which a therapist puts special cups on your skin for a few minutes to create suction. People get it for many purposes, including to help with pain, inflammation, blood flow, relaxation, and well-being. It's also a type of deep tissue massage. But there's no solid evidence that it has any health benefits, and it's considered pseudoscience. Well, and, I, you know, even if there's no evidence that it directly, you know, affects people's health in a scientific way, I think that there's something to be said for the placebo effect. I know a lot of people gain some sort of pleasure yeah. or happiness out of it in some way, so that's fine. I mean, it's not really going to hurt you, is yeah. it? So as long as it's not physically hurting them, unless, it's, unless they're foregoing actual scientific treatment in lieu of that but i mean if it's like you know oh they go get their treatment from the doctor and then they go get their cup therapy like who's to say that that's not fine i think that's totally fine if they're doing it in conjunction with whatever yeah i mean i could see like doing it for like the whole like massage therapeutic kind of that's fine you know and you know something but in the whole placebo effect is yeah is documented fact that it does sure happen. and it's right. fine i but, mean some people are I mean, like they swear by chi- their chiropractor and some people are like ah oh, chiropractors a bunch of hogwash but it's like look if it's helping them and it's but, not um, hurting them it's fine but yeah but um as long as you don't forego real traditional sure medicine, sure sure and know. i don't even want to say real like okay okay Let me if it's that. you know but whatever uh, it's if, as long as I see you what forego, you're saying. you don't forego like you know actual medical um yeah, like scientific yeah. medical shit. And there's a lot of scientific medical shit that does hurt people, like the whole opioid e- epidemic. Like that's it's supposedly oh, yeah. this was going to help you, and now it's fucked up a lot of people. So, right, right. Or if you see like any kind of commercial for medicines today, and then the side effects include all of this crap. Liver that's failure. Kill you. Yeah. Your eyes explode. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's mostly Suicidal in the states. Tendencies. Yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. So it's. But you'll still have an erection. <laughs> I think that I think that saying saying stuff like yeah saying yeah. stuff like. Oh, um, what's the thing with the needles? Acupuncture. acupuncture. Saying, right. oh, acupuncture isn't real. Well, it helps some people, so whatever, let them do it. It's yeah. fine, I think. As yeah. long as they're not actively harming themselves, it's fine. And there are a lot of treatments that we would say are scientific, but still cause a lot of harm. So who are we to say? Whatever. Anyway, that's yeah. my two cents on that. Yeah, and I think we see that Daimyo, we see in this story that Daimyo's dealing with some shit, he's too. He's yeah. shit. Let, so, him, let him do it, man. So I, I think he's got good reason for doing whatever he's doing. Sure. And that leads us a good segue into our book club for the week. We're going to be talking about The Universal Machine. The Universal Machine was published as a five-issue miniseries from April to August 2006. Story by Mignola and Arcudi. Art by Guy Davis, plus a special appearance. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. And I like that they didn't list 
it just says Art Guy Davis, and they didn't fucking say anything else. Oh, yeah, so yeah. It's, anyway, but yeah, yeah, this is a dream team. I'm loving this already. I got to say, uh, when I started to read the story, looking at this cover, I was just like, damn, I'm still not over the death oh, of Roger. No, and I think just, that... All, you know. That's purposeful, though. That's I think that, and and all the readers too. We were all still kind of hanging on throughout. Like, if you think about this, from April to August two thousand six. So we Jeez. were trying to see, like, oh, what's going to happen? Yeah. It kind of leads you on this thread, like they're trying to figure out. A, but anyway, we'll get to it. But, but the covers are beautiful. But uh, I do like how they. This isn't just like some brand new adventure. I mean, it is, but it also has the team dealing with the death of Roger. Right, yeah. and I I really appreciate that. Sure. We open on bombs. Abe and Daimyo watch all these bombs being dropped into the chasm where the remains of the Ogdruhem Kothahem fell at the end of the Black Flame. I just got to say before we start, the universal machine, I'm instantly curious. It's that's definitely my wheelhouse. I'm really excited. And like I just want to say, normally I'm I'm making little quick notes as I'm reading, but with this story, I honestly I like couldn't put it down at all. Yeah. I couldn't stop. I read it all the way through, and I had to go back over it again and make my notes like that's how drawn in I was by the Great. story. So anyway, I love I'll let this you, one. Yeah, I won't interrupt. But these these pages, it immediately starts with something you want to fucking see. I'm yeah. not skipping anything. I'm not <laughs> skimming. I am drawn the fuck in, and I had to like read it all the way through before I even stopped to take any kind of little notes or whatever. Anyway, I don't know when I when I first saw this opening panel, the first thing I thought was bombs falling down. Oh yeah, Pearl Jam. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. Abe's not sure that the bombs will make any difference, but Daimyo explains that they'd feel pretty silly if they didn't, and that giant freak slug came crawling back out. Abe says that Ace says that it will take over a billion tons of material to fill the pit, so I tried to look what ACE stands for, and there's a ton of acronyms for ACE, but one of them that I found was Army Corps of Engineers, so I wonder if maybe that's what he's referring to. That's most likely what it is. That's what that is. And he says it beggars the imagination, which I feel is like a weird thing for Abe to say. Like it's kind of like a call throwback or I don't know. I just thought it was, I don't know. Do people say that it beggars the imagination? I've heard people say it begs the imagination. I've heard people say that like. I say buggers, bo- the, buggers the imagination. Bug- okay. Maybe buggers, that's what... buggers is is uh, slang for fucking. Yeah. I've heard people say like, oh, it boggles the mind. But uh, I don't know if heard that's, that too. Sure. Yeah. Maybe so. that's what I'm thinking of. But yeah, he is kind of being a, a little bit of a weirdo. Yeah, and I, we, we get I'm to that. I'm picking up what you're laying down. We get to that a little bit more. Yeah. Daimyo says, yeah, it would if it all wasn't right here to just shove in. Uh, and Daimyo looks at the ruined city. Over 1,700 dead in this city, and still all I can think of is Roger. Well, that's a, a given because, you know, I mean, Roger was his friend, and then the 1,700 people, while tragic, you know, that level of death it's just right it becomes so overwhelming yeah i think he's saying that they're they he would he feels partially responsible for not being able to contain it and then all those people dying and like it's just a massive tragedy and then he still maybe he feels a little selfish for being like all i can think about is my, is my own friend right back at the bprd headquarters in colorado liz and kate examine roger's remains experts say there is no way to regrow the homunculus and johan is also researching well, that's obviously not his discipline. And I thought that that's a nice little line by Kate because she's like, I'm the researcher. He's not. It's a little sharp. Kind it of is. A... It is. She has a couple moments like that in the story. I like and... how you can still see the um, line where they try to cut off his arm. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're right. Because they were mm. doing that at the end of the Black Flame. Yeah. Kate's phone rings and we are introduced to Andrew Devon. 
he and Kate were supposed to meet, and she's late. I like this guy. They meet in her office. Kate says she's usually not that secretive, but she doesn't want to get her colleagues' hopes up. Devon says he's learned of a copy of the Flama Reconditus, the secret fire. Kate already has a copy, but Devon's source has a Hollandus edition. Here we go. Which Kate believes is a phantom book. Hollandus is an alchemist. And I went online and read all of his shit, and it is fucking wild. Oh, great. I didn't research this. <laughs> okay. Let, tell us about Hollandus. All right. Well, some people think that the name Johann Isaac Hollandus is a pseudonym. That's generally the widely accepted huh, thing. Interesting. Okay. And uh, there exists detailed writing attributed to this name. Uh, it's just a lot of alchemy stuff. It's just... It's fucking wild. It's just distillation, fermentation, all this crazy shit. Well, not crazy. It's, it's, it's all this um, out there stuff. And apparently... He did some glass blowing as well. I don't know, but it's really specific, fucking weird alchemy shit. They're they're all online. You can find it really easily um, in PDF form. It's fucking wild. It's wonderfully creepy. It's um, I would read some of it, but you can find it. It's right. just very like. And then you add this tincture, and you add the essence of Saturn to the salt, and then you distill it, and it becomes powdery white. Wow. And why is it white? Because it is pure. And then you burn that for a while, and it, it's very, very specific detailed instructions on how to do alchemy. And it is... I had never looked any of this stuff up before, and its I had never seen anything like it. And it's very detailed writings. I encourage you to go look at it if you like creepy, weird occult shit right. and, and alchemy stuff, because it, it makes you want to actually like do this stuff in your kitchen. It's like, <laughs> distill the vinegar into the mercury and all this stuff, and it's its really fucking cool. So check that out. It's in PDF form. You can find that. It's, um, it's like halfway down the first Google results or okay. whatever. So yeah, you can find all that. But yeah, it's, it's there. It's real. <laughs> A true record of the workings of the universal machine, Kate says. If any book has a formula for regrowing homunculus, Devon says, this would be it. We cut to Abelben, France, and this is a fictional city. Kate and Devon hike up uh, to a small town. And like I said, it, it's a fictional city, but the name in German means passing away or demise. Oh, wow. But this is in France, so I don't know if that you know translation um, carries over. Well, Kate's a little winded. What were you going to say? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> I want to mention that um, I know we haven't really gotten to it yet, but overall I want to say the A and B plots are so well paced. Yeah. <laughs> In this oh, story, yeah. it's a great quote-unquote episode. Right. Like if this were a show, this would be like the one of the best fucking sure. episodes or yeah. whatever. Like it's, it's, it's just so well paced. The A and B plots are masterfully done. I really like it a lot. Kate's a little winded as they get there, but she wanted to accompany Devon. He doesn't have the background history that she has, plus the guy was cagey as hell on the phone. Negotiations are a tricky thing. You've got to be more than a buyer. You have to be a friend, Kate explains. And historians make good friends, Devon asks. And I was thinking about this. We haven't seen Kate out in the field since almost Colossus, I think. Right. She's she was out there with Hellboy. And the then boss. for Hollow Earth, she did go out into the field, but she had to stay in the helicopter the whole time. <laughs> so it's been a while. Kate shows Devon how much she knows about the town and the rocks the buildings are made of. The town they're in, Abelben, used to be Duchy of Fabwa, named for Marquis Aduette de Fabwa. Can you say that better? Aduette de Fabre. His home was built on a peak... Although it's not there anymore. He had all these exotic animals. People thought they were monsters, including ones that was supposedly a werewolf. Then in 1491, children started disappearing. 
People blamed him, and they thought that he was feeding the monsters with their young. So the town people gathered with their pitchforks they and torched the place Frankenstein, Frankenstein style. Yeah. yeah. Yep. While all this is going on, a massive storm hit the town, and lightning blew up the castle. And we get some great flashbacks. I like whenever they do the flashbacks; they're kind of tinted brown or a reddish. Yeah. 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 Supernatural forces are supposed to have been at work, or it might have been a bomb built by the villagers. The most elusive parts of history are the facts, Kate tells Devon. A hundred years later, Pope Sixtus V lifted the curse of Marquis de Fabwa and the town was rebuilt from the ruins of the castle. So there was a Pope Sixtus from December 1521 to August 1590. He was the Pope of the Catholic Church from 1585 to his death in 1590. So it would have been near the end of his life. Not exactly a hundred years. I tried to see that, but it is close. Um, so it's roughly about 100 years. So that historical fiction lines up. Ah, uh, gotcha. Hell of a story, Devon says. Not a story. History, Kate says. And knowing it will make me our collector's friend. Well, I think what she's what she's really saying, like the subsect of that is, it'll put me yeah. on the same level as this guy and give me more bargaining power. Whereas if he thinks he's got one over on you in any way, even intellectually, yes. if you're not intellectually at least on his level, then it's going to be a little weird. So she wants to come and kind of manage that. And I can see her point. Yeah. I can and, see yeah. that. And, and, like and we, we see that pay off in a really good way, too. Sure. In a little bit. I like this guy a lot, though. I think he's great. He's a great character. Back at the BPRD headquarters in Colorado, Daimyo and Liz talk in the kitchen. Daimyo is irritated that Kate took off in France. And Liz explains that she's there on BPRD business to get a book that might save Roger. So it's like... Kate was trying to keep it from the team, but yeah. somehow they still found out about it. Sure. And they're yeah. just talking about it in the kitchen. Yeah. I like that. These scenes in the kitchen, this is what I was talking about when I was saying the A and B plot are yeah. so fucking spectacular. We've got something fucking awesome going on with Kate. First of all, her scenes are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got something really interesting going on in the kitchen back at the BPRD headquarters. So it's like, I've got something to... To, to satiate my curiosity on both levels yeah. and it really works at any time a scene from either the a or the b plot ends it's exactly in the right place because i'm like no i want to find out what happens but it's like oh but we're back in this other thing where yeah. I, I also want to find out what happens <laughs> yeah. here so i'm not bored in either case it's yeah great. It, it jumps it, the jumps are very um very well done yeah, yeah. the pacing is so mm -hmm. good anyway yeah save him daimyo asks nobody's more sorry about this than me poor roger's dead and I love Damio's face, the expression yeah. on his face when he tells Liz that. he. This is one of the few times where he seems a little sympathetic to yes. her. They're not butting heads for the moment. He seems, yeah. <laughs> he seems like sympathetic and also he's feeling something yeah, other than unmitigated right. rage, which is great. So. <laughs> Death is complicated, Johan says from behind, scaring Daimyo. I like how he's just always sitting back yes. there in the kitchen. We saw him sitting there in the beginning of Hollow Earth also. Yeah, and he's he's so mad that he's been surprised. He's like, what the fuck? He's like, why the hell are you hiding back there? You want to give me a heart attack? I am sorry, but I wasn't hiding, Johan says. And he tells Daimyo that the homunculus death is difficult to determine. I mean, he's right. He wasn't hiding. He was just sitting at the other table. <laughs> well, no, but he's, yeah. I just, I just love that whole moment thing. It's just wonderful. And Daimyo says, you must know what you're talking about, but Roger's head is gone. His body's gone. How can you say death is relative when faced with that? And Johan says nothing. Ask the man who was dead for three days, Liz retorts. And we cut back to Kate. Kate and Devon meet Thierry. Devon talks to him in French, but Thierry says, English, please. 
He tells them the story of his ring, saying it's a reproduction of the ring Pope Urban VII, who lifted the curse from the town war. And there was a Pope Urban VII also. He reigned as Pope from August 6, 1623 to his death in 1644. He expanded the papal territory by force of arms and advantageous politicking. And he was also a prominent patron of the arts and a reformer of church missions. Okay, so this guy purposefully throws out the wrong names to see if she's going to catch it. Yeah, and she does. She says, you mean Pope Sixtus, don't you? And I notice, like, if you look at the blocking or whatever, it's very cinematic, but, like, he's not talking to her. No. He's talking to Devon. Yeah. And then when she chimes in with that piece of knowledge, he kind of turns towards her, and then he introduces himself to her. Like, he was kind of ignoring her initially and just talking to Devon. And, I I mean, I want to just very briefly say that i know what that feels like it's like i have to introduce myself to people sometimes and they're like oh uh yeah hi um yeah and it's like all right so i i get that but also this guy's a fuck boy yeah he says yes of course you're right how stupid of me to forget i am teary and she says so you said i'm dr corrigan and i'm like yeah kate she's getting ready to throw down sure yeah devon has to go use a telephone booth outside since there's no cell reception once alone with Kate, Tyri and her go head-to-head on all their facts of the various artifacts, and Kate being unable to be stumped. They talk about the brass head that spoke to Pope Innocent III, a painting from a blind Duchess of Athena, Adrian the human clock who served in the court of Charles the Fat. Okay, so I was telling Danielle, I haven't had to do this much research since Wake the Devil. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I did some research here. There was a Pope Innocent III, Pope Innocent III. He reigned from January 1198 to his death in 1216, and he was one of the most powerful and influential of the medieval popes. I couldn't find anything about him talking to a brass head, but I did read that he did base a decision on a dream that he had. But regarding to the brass head, this is often referred to as a brazen head. A brazen head, brass, or bronze head was a legendary automaton in the early modern period whose ownership was ascribed to late medieval scholars such as Roger Bacon, who had developed a reputation as a wizard. Made of brass or bronze, the male head was variously mechanical or magical. Furthermore, there was a Pope Sylvester II, and he was supposed to have built a brazen head. There's a rumor, that, there's a legend that he built a robotic head that would answer his questions with yes or no. He was also um, rumored to have a pact with a female demon called Mariana, who had appeared to him after he had been rejected by his earthly love, and with whose help he managed to ascend to the papal throne. And to take that a little further, there was a Pope Sylvester II referenced in the Right Hand of Doom Hellboy story. It was he that said, And I looked down into the end of the world and saw a beast, and in his right hand was the key to the bottomless pit. So there's all that. (laughs) Regarding the blind Duchess painter... Infantina Margarita of Spain, Duchess of Soria, who is currently alive, is a blind duchess, although she's not a painter. And then there was another Duchess of Lorraine in the 19th century. There was a romanticized version of her life was turned into a play. And in the play, she was a beautiful blind princess who was living in an isolated garden palace. But there's no evidence that she was ever really blind. It was just a play that they made of her life afterwards. And I thought this was really interesting. There are many blind artists and painters. Yep. This seeming contradiction is overcome when one understands that only about 10% of people with blindness can see absolutely nothing at all. As such, most blind people can in fact perceive some level of light and form, and it is by applying this limited vision that many blind artists create intelligible art. 
Also, a blind person may have once been fully sighted and may simply lost part of their vision through injury or illness. Blind artists are able to offer insight into the study of blindness and have ways in which art can be perceived by the blind in order to better improve art education for the visually impaired. So you can look up all those blind artists if you want to. I kind of went down a rabbit hole there. I couldn't find a reference to Adrian the Human Clock, but Charles the Fat was real. He was known as Charles the Fat because he was described as being considered lethargic and inept. It was known that he had repeated illnesses and he was believed to have suffered from epilepsy. And he twice purchased peace with Viking raiders, including the infamous Siege of Paris, which led to his downfall. So Charles the Fat, the Vikings were coming to raid France, and he was like, well, I'll pay you to just pass my town up. So he gave them money, but he let them continue on and just siege Paris. So he was not... um, he was not a popular Just guy. Just want to chime in here on the whole thing about um, fat people being perceived as either lethargic or inept. That is a, a stigma that does follow a lot of people who are fat or, you know, whatever the preferred nomenclature is. Um, so I just want to say that that's something that is not, you know, doesn't necessarily, fat people are not necessarily yeah. lethargic or inept. Some people are just fat and it's fine and they're healthy and their doctors won't listen to them and say, well, you're unhealthy because you're fat. And it's actually like, well, no, like I'm, you know, all my blood work and all my blood pressure and everything says that I'm perfectly fine. And so, you know, I don't have diabetes and I'm not whatever. So it's like one of those things where, you know, uh, I think that I think that uh, fat people are facing a lot of stigma. So, if you know, I think that during the time that this guy lived, sure, I'm sure that that was... Yeah, 839 to 888. Yeah, that was the people's opinion of him. But obviously now in current society or whatever we can probably say that that was probably who's to say if that was really what it was like i don't know so whatever just wanted to throw that out there yeah but wasn't it like in like olden times or maybe not in this time but like uh like 18th and 19th century wasn't it like the more weight you had signified that you had more money more mo- i don't know because you know um if you were poor you couldn't eat as much and so if you had a little more meat on you right it signified wealth in a right way. i don't know who's and if you look, look at like you know, art from that time. It's like, you know, the standard of beauty has shifted. Was, yeah. Yeah. Sure. I don't know. So it's, you know, I'm, but it's I completely a, agree with you. I am out of my depth in that particular discussion. I don't, but I know that there are a lot of people who do write articles about it online. You could probably find out more about that if you want to Google uh, whatever fat sure. acceptance, I think is the term. So I don't know. Back with Kate. She's getting anxious to see the book. But Terry has one more question for Kate. He leads her to a taxidermy mandrill and he asks her what it is. After a beat, Kate turns to the man. It's a werewolf, she says. <laughs> I like that look on her face where, right before she gets the answer. Yeah. It's just that little like, hmm. Yeah, little. there's a beat of her thinking about it. She's trying to figure out what he's trying to get out look, of her. any woman who has ever been drunkenly <laughs> quizzed at a party or a show about oh, you like this band, name five of their albums. What's your favorite album? And it's like, I don't mind if someone's like, oh, wow, what's your favorite album? Like, they're so excited. But so, oh, yeah, what's your favorite album? Who is There's the, a difference, who you know? Who's the producer on that? Yeah, album? exactly. Or like, oh, you read comics? Well, well, what about blah, 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 blah. Like, very, like, trying to quiz you. If you're trying to fucking quiz me, you're not interested in a conversation with me. You're clearly a creepy fuckboy who's being an asshole and wants to gatekeep, and that sucks. And keep other people out of comics yeah but then there are people who are like oh you're into this Uh, let me tell you about some books i don't know if you've read them but they're great you might be interested in this what have you read they want to know what you've read because they want to share things with you that's cool and so that's you know what i mean but 
any woman who's been on the receiving end of this quizzing has made that face. Didn't um, somebody once ask you to name five Decepticons to prove that you like Transformers? And it's like, dude, is that a real? It's that's a, a real story, though, right? That's it's something a movie. Happened. Can I like just like ever so slightly changing the subject a bit? <laughs> um, I I like the idea that people who have never seen um, a um, a Mandrill. Um, yeah, thinking that that would be a werewolf sure. or a monster, and yeah. it's it's just like, oh, that actually makes a lot I of sense. I guess if you've like never if you, seen it before, if it would you've be like... never seen anything right. like that yeah. before, and it's this creature, yeah. and you're just like, oh, that must be some supernatural, yeah, thing. And we right. grew up being like, this is yeah. a baboon, this is a gorilla. Right, but I'm sure right. at the time, if you'd never seen something like that, it would be like, what is that? Because like you know, probably like people like in the Stone Age time when lightning happened, they were like, oh, it's the gods or sure, something absolutely, like that. yeah, exactly. that's how, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, they they even talk about it like it's not superstition. It's right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And then, of course, turning the page, Daimyo is whole ass grabbing a fucking piece of <laughs> cake or brownie or whatever right out of the tray, not even using like a butter knife to get uh, it out of there. That is a shared dessert in that fridge. And did he wash his hands? Come on, people. I mean, really, that's just rude. But I love that that his character would do something like that. Yeah. It's just a tiny insight. Yeah, I do like that. And we're picking up right after that last comment where Liz said, uh, so says a guy who was dead for three days. Sure. Look, I'm sorry I said anything, okay? Let's just forget about it. And Johan says, you just rejected the relativism of death. But Elizabeth makes a point. And Daimyo says, (laughs) why do you spend so much time here? It's not like you drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's 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 a great jab. But I think, I mean, one of the reasons he might spend so much time in there is the kitchen is where everybody goes to gather and yeah talk. you're and right in any party every, everyone yeah, ends up in I a fucking say that, kitchen yeah. and then like um, if you ever worked in like an office everybody's always hanging out in yeah. the kitchen or by the water cooler i sure. mean there's those are cliches for a reason it's a right. little gathering yeah. area elizabeth abraham and i have all been pronounced dead but here we are as are you johan says or is there something about your experience that makes you different <laughs> why you putting together a family album daimyo says what the hell is the big secret about what happened to you anyway, Liz asks. Well, they have a point. I mean, Liz's um, background is public knowledge. She can't escape it. Everyone knows and people have been known to make little comments about it or whatever and make her feel like shit about it. So I can see why I would be a little resentful. Like, yeah. well, why do you get to be a fucking secret? I don't have that luxury. Johan doesn't have that luxury. Everyone knows he used to be whatever a medium and then he died but not really and now he's in and people make cracks and insults about how he's just a big bag or whatever right. and so it's like well daimyo they're they're kind of pressuring him to spill the beans a little maybe to draw them all closer as a family sure. and maybe to kind of relate to him a little bit i don't know yeah and daimyo just says that they can read the report and he has to be left alone and liz has some really great lines here she says in the dictionary next to the entry for passive aggressive is a picture of you. <laughs> and she also says, yeah, Johan, leave him alone. Even after all we've been through with him, it's obvious we're still just outsiders to the captain. And it really gets a, him. Yeah, there's a beat and he's like, all right, all right, fine. <laughs> Back to Kate and Teary. They reference what Kate told Devon earlier. The townspeople thought that 
the marquee had a werewolf, but it was a mandrill. And I did find some evidence on this on cryptozoology forums. Mm. And if you look up a mandrill, there are some really big ones. And you can they look oh. very ferocious. Like wow. Googled mandrills. There's also like a big lemur that looks kind of like a mandrill. I mean, that kind of looks like a werewolf wow. also. Yeah, and if you look up some, uh, I'll probably post a picture yeah. This week online of that, I found like a really vicious looking oh. mandrill that was standing on all fours, like growling. And it looked like, I mean, yeah, it looked yeah. like you a werewolf. Think, yeah, it would be a werewolf. Sure. I mean, like with like, you know, apes have the same like kind of human type structure we do. And like, but they're all covered in hair and then the big ass teeth that they have. They have a weird snout. Yeah. Ugh. And they are pretty ferocious, yeah. Yeah, yeah and but they're that's, also so cute. <laughs> that, that's kind of what what Kate uh, alludes to here. She says, "Then was it really superstition? The nose looks a little like a wolf's, doesn't it? It's easy to see the confusion. Ignorance doesn't equal superstition. They simply were grappling with a strange world, using the best means available to them at that moment to understand it. Every time new data emerges that overturns all conventional wisdom, I think that we're not so very different." And Thierry likes this. He yeah. says, words expressive of a truly enlightened mind, if anyone wants my opinion. It's great. And so they go off to look for the book. And you can kind of see some of Thierry's collection here. There's something that looks like a phoenix. Yeah. yeah. That's right? what I was thinking, too. And um, you see all his books. It's and It's starting to get a little weird. Yeah, it is. We're starting to feel a little... A little bit of the creep factor Lost coming in. Lost in the woods, yeah, yeah, kind of a thing. Outside, Devon can't get a signal, and he waits for the current caller to get out of the phone booth. Which is kind of weird because in that, I don't know if this is just a stupid continuity error, this is me being picky, but when he first went outside, there was nobody in the booth. And then in this one, he's waiting for someone to get out. Like, did that lady just jump in there really quick? That like, might be part of the weird, creepy magic uh, that's going yeah. on here in the town. Because aren't these people all, well, yeah, we haven't yeah. gotten there yet, but wouldn't they try to be sabotaging him in some way? Right. Possibly, but also um, I wouldn't put it past him to try and like maybe walk around a little bit, trying to hold his phone up, trying oh, to get yeah. a signal. Oh yeah, you're sure. right. Maybe he didn't go to the phone booth immediately. Yeah. But he finally gets in at the end. We go back to Kate and Terry, and Terry talks about his collection with Kate, and he says that he starts to run out of room. Kate comments that his shop looks bigger on the inside than it does on the outside. Terry says, if only I could think of the world as storage for all things, but that would require a communal philosophy of life and property and I confess, it is not in my nature to share. And Kate's kind of looking around, and I love these panels because as she looks around, it just seems like it's getting bigger. The perspective and really bigger. shifts. Yeah, and like yeah. she looks up, and it looks really tall. Well, the reveal on this next page is so... I was just like, oh, man, yeah. so fucking cool looking. And so as she looks on and on, this place just appears bigger and bigger. We see that there's like a giant whale yeah, monster uh, thing there's like a giant whale uh the remains of a whale hanging in the air i love this this the pacing here dr corrigan and then all the little mood shots and then is there something wrong and then her face the yeah. fucking expression on her face and then just this this big panel with all the the armoires and the bookshelves all over the, it's just so it's creepy and magical and hits just the right tone i fucking love this so much i stared at this page for so long right there's like a big hand in there Do yeah you see that? all the just everything it's just oh fucking cool he's 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 almost like a um a well-organized medieval hoarder <laughs> yeah but it's yeah. i mean just the magical creepiness of it and i i have to admit 
I would love to spend time in this room. <laughs> right, yeah. I know that that seems really... <laughs> Obviously, this is a very scary moment for her, and she realizes she's trapped in some hellscape of... And, she, oh, this is fucked up and scary, but I would love to spend some time in Oh, <laughs> totally, totally love to spend some time Well, in and there's a part where Terry's talking about how he runs out of room for his collection. Yeah. If only, and I'm, and I'm thinking about that in terms of me, because I'm like, yeah. I have a big collection, and I'm like... Anyway, no, it starts sure, to it starts sure. to go everywhere. <laughs> it starts to take over your whole life. Anyway, Devon makes his call outside. When he finally gets to Manning, he notices a hand pulling the shade down on the shop door and putting up a close sign. Devon immediately runs over and he sees that the door is locked. And he kind of freaks out. He calls for Dr. Corgan and he kicks the door down. And he finds the shop empty except for a display case and a painting of DeFabre's castle. A light on in the top spire. I gotta say, I love the. Way, I mean, he didn't just kick the door down; he like broke it in two. <laughs> He's just like, wham, that yeah. door. <laughs> so, um, chapter two. I love the way Mignola draws Daimyo. This yeah. is like a really good shot of Daimyo. All the skulls. You see the big jaguar in the yeah. back. It's a great cover. All these covers are fucking. So this is what I was referring to with Abe, where he said it beggars the imagination. Here we see Abe in his room. He sits at his Victorian <laughs> desk. What in the world, and, Abe? He is yeah. so extra. And he's, he is so extra. He's penning in his journal, and he's using language that's very. Well, he's he's ad- using language of the time of call. He's adopted these ridiculous affectations. It's absurd. Yeah, he says. And he basically, he ignores Liz's call. She's calling him on the phone. And he's basically saying that he can't sleep and he might need to get some drugs if, so if, if he emo. continues. Yeah. If my difficulty sleeping persists, I think I shall seek pharmaceutical assistance. Like, yeah. dude. It, it's like, what, did you read all the letters and decide you had to write like that now? Uh, <laughs> exactly. very, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I yeah. love the reveal that Liz is calling him because she wants everyone to hear Daimyo's story. It's so good. This isn't an emergency. Leave him alone. It's so funny. He's so annoyed, and Liz is all excited, like she wants to call Abe in there so he can hear Daimyo spill the tea, and right. Johan gets up and moves closer, and everyone's all excited to hear yes. the juicy story. And Daimyo's so mad about it. Like I love little moments like this when their personalities all shine through. A really well done little bit here. It's yeah, very yeah. character Daim- driven and cute. <laughs> Daimyo says, why not just get a few cameras and sell it online? And Johan's like, maybe we should record it. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. It's great. And Daimyo tells his story. In spring of 2001, he was in Bolivia heading up an extraction mission. And we cut to the flashback in the jungle. Daimyo talks to Bennett. I thought it was kind of cool to see Daimyo also without that huge scar on his face. Like, it's really interesting interesting because it's, you know, that it's him, but he looks so different. Even though it's only that one little change. Well, and this really speaks to um, the exquisite artistry here of of being able to uh, show characters at any time, any point in their history, and obviously still be able to recognize it as them. It's it really speaks to the um, the artist. Really good. Daimyo talks to another soldier, Bennett, and from the dialogue, we understand that Bennett has been down there researching the area for seven months. Daimyo's mission suggests that the true path has kidnapped some nuns, and Bennett says his research says that the true path is peaceful. And Timothy McVeigh used to work at a Burger King. What's your point, Daimyo says. And this is a reference to McVeigh, who was a domestic terrorist who was executed for the Oklahoma City bombing. That occurred in 1995. Well, I like his tendency to... He he wants to get right to the point. Right. So he will 
kill a mosquito with a cannon. He will just, <laughs> you know, because he wants to, he, he, in his mind, he's like, I'm going to snap you out of whatever it is you're fucking thinking right now by using these very dramatic examples. And he's, I just, I, I, I don't know. I think that that's, um, that's another little character quirk that right. I really enjoy. And Daimyo says he goes where his boss tells him to. If it's nuns, if it's drugs, or if it isn't, that's what I do, see? Are you saying that you don't think any nuns were actually kidnapped, Bennett asks? You ask more questions than any jarhead I ever met. Carrillo, Chavez, take the point, Daimyo says. As they approach, one of them whispers, two more clicks. Let's keep it quiet now. Jarhead, of course, being slang for Marine? Yeah. Is it? Okay. Mm -hmm. I know also Marines, they call them, what, devil dogs? I don't know. Or something like that? Anyway. Carrillo and Chavez see a nun. As they approach her, we reveal that she has a jaguar skull for a head. Oh. It appears to be a distraction. And the troops are suddenly shot at with arrows. Daimyo asks Bennett for info, and he says there's a local folktale about a jaguar cult. They stalk Indians for sacrifice, but no one believes in them. They're like the boogeymen. And the team are surrounded by these natives. Well, okay, so the, they fire arrows, but... They're very precise yeah. with how where they're firing. The, so they, they are precise enough to fire an arrow at a thin cord and strike it. That is a very difficult shot. So they know where they're firing. It's a warning shot. Yes, it is a warning. It's a warning shot. And so they're not killing anyone until this fucking guy yeah. waves around his machine gun in a threatening manner and points at them. And then they're like, okay, we'll shoot you through the neck then. Sure. Like that's, I think, on him a little bit. Yeah, one of the guys gets shot in the neck, and as soon as that arrow hits him in the neck, all hell breaks loose. All the troops start firing at the natives. Daimyo orders to cease fire. Daimyo says that they didn't leave anyone to question. They killed everybody. Some of the troops are missing, and Bennett sees a black shape in the jungle. And we reveal, again, this awesome creature design, and it is very loose and kind yeah, of sketchy. I love it, though. And you can see how it kind of is camouflaged yeah. in yeah. in all the jungle and everything like it's it's loose but it's not like it's just i yeah. love this yeah. i don't it's even great. have the language to describe why i love it and i love that we get this huge reveal as you're reading it you're like oh shit what's gonna happen next and then it cuts back to the, the thing plot i love it and abe is there he's like excuse me liz were you calling me so, so he finally gets there <laughs> yeah and that's how you really build tension and then we've got well, that's even like a C plot, I guess, because the story yeah. it goes down into a. He's telling the story, and then it cuts back to we surface to his story is interrupted by Abe coming in, and yeah. then we immediately switch over to the other thing with Kate. And yeah, it's just ah, it's so good. Ah, it's so good. Back with Devon, he tries to ask the locals about the shop, about the owner, but they ignore him. And we focus again on that painting and the light in the window. Really cool. Back with Kate. Where is this place, she asks. Please, Dr. Corrigan, if you just step in here, I will not keep you in suspense. And Teary gestures her into this large dinner hall. In the room are a taxidermy horse, some sort of hydra, and a griffin. That's what I was trying to figure out what these were. Well, even were. the horse is a little weird looking. Yeah, it's got a weird yeah. shaped head, and the hydra looks like it has wings. Yeah. And then this other thing I was thinking that it looks kind of like a griffin. There is a group of people doing something terrible, which we don't have to talk about. Yeah. Because so I don't want to talk about Around it. the dinner table are these horrible pale vampires. And they have like bat noses and they have like the Dracula hair, like from yeah. the Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, I don't really know what that's called. And they have these utensils on their fingertips and they're stabbing. They're doing something bad and yeah. then we're moving on. 
gross. And Tiri says they never tire of that. Sad and horrible. I have to mention, I have two sweet birds that actually have their own room in our home, and I don't want to talk about it. Right. It makes me so upset. Well, they're, 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 they're torturing this poor little creature. I don't want to talk about it. Ugh. And Kate again says, where are we? And they're standing in front of this giant red painting of the devil, which is very ominous behind them. It's a great painting. I was trying. I thought this was a reference to something, but I couldn't find it. If anyone knows if this is a reference to a real painting or a sculpture, uh, I'd be interested to know that. It seems familiar to me, but it might just be because I've read the story a bunch of times sure, and it's yeah. just familiar to me from that. Kind of like the look on the devil's face. It's not like all menacing. It's more like, hey, where's my beer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You guys want to go down to the local place and shoot some pool? <laughs> Tiri summons Lagurk, and Lagurk is this small little homunculus guy with a crown. And Tiri verbally assaults him and kicks him over. He's like, because Kate doesn't take the wine, he offers her wine, and she doesn't take it. And he's like, it's not the wine. She didn't even taste it. One look at you and her stomach turned. And he kicks the little guy over. So mean and rude. You know what they say, don't judge a person how they treat you, judge them how they treat... Uh... You know, like a waiter. Or right, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Really awful. Aduet de Fabwa, Kate says to Thierry, uh, yes, Dr. Corrigan, you are in the court of Aduet de Fabwa, but I think here Kate's figured out that he sure. is the Marquis, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Aduet Marquis de Fabre. Does that really startle you with all you've seen in your career? Kate says she's impressed since the castle was destroyed 500 years ago. And you, dot, 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 and I think, again, she's trying to, Say that she realizes that he's really the marquee. Sure. A man with much to offer, Tiri says, who is a shrewd negotiator, can strike a deal for anything. And we cut to that devil picture again. I love the pacing with that, how it kind of cuts to that. It very reminds me of Mignola's style. Yeah, you know, it really does. Those little mood shots. Mm-hmm. And you, Doctor, what sort of negotiator are you? He asks. No, Sherman, I'm not going to start over again. Yes. <laughs> we cut back to the team and yeah, Daimyo's not going to start over. These are so over. important to the pacing of the story, to the storytelling yeah. itself. I love it. And it kind of brings you back in. Anyway, as I was saying, in the flashback, Daimyo's team shoots at and gets torn to shreds by the black monster. Daimyo starts to freak out for a little bit after his, most of his team gets killed. He tries to regain his composure and we see a nun jaguar and it starts to approach him from behind. As he turns, it attacks him, and it bites off the side of his face. And so that's where we see that he gets that scar that he has now. And, like, I'm not a horror guy. Like, I'm not a gory guy. I don't like watching gory movies, but I love looking at this shit. Like, when it's all tearing up all the guys and everything, there's just something about this art. And this this kind of horror, like, really appeals to me for some reason. Well, it is, I will say, the art is well done, but I do not enjoy it at all. Yeah. I'm not a gore person. I'm not either, but every once in a while there's like a movie that kind of... Right, you know, yeah. Or, or some art, you know. Daimyo runs off, and I notice that there's a shadow right here. Did you notice this shadow? As he's running, his mm-hmm. shadow is like a jaguar shadow yeah. or some sort of beast. And he hears dialogue from the two soldiers. Two more clicks, keep it quiet. And then he sees Bennett, and Bennett's all torn to shreds, but he still stands there. You ask more questions than any jarhead I ever met. And Daimyo falls to the ground. As he bleeds out, he sees a severed head of one of his troops. And on top of the head is one of those no-mask monkeys, the snow monkeys that we've seen in some other flashbacks. And it sits on the head and it talks into the mic. I say again, Romeo, Foxtrot, Kilo, this is the Echo Company. We have full mission aboard. At least four dead, two badly wounded, immediate medical assistance required. 
hold on to your gun and you'll be fine, which is something that Daimyo says. And so this is really creepy. I found this scene like just very Super unsettling. Super creepy. And it makes you realize why Daimyo was so shocked to see that thing in a jar when he was looking for a sure. weapon at the end of the dead. Yeah. I mean, I would be fucking freaked out too. <laughs> Jeez. And suddenly a giant paw appears. Daimyo sees this jaguar god. What'd you guys think of this scene? Incredible. Oh yeah, it was just amazing. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw this, I just I had to keep coming back to this page over yeah. and over. And it's just a small little piece of dialogue, but I really love this. The old world is your soul. Leave it there. It is old. The new world is life. Take your life. And we zoom in on this Jaguar God's mouth and there's like a white light in there. And I just love the design of this thing. If you look at it, it's got like there's like a hole where its heart is and there's all these birds flying around from there. And then its tail is like made of fire or something like that. And it's got these weird bone things to kind of sticking out of its neck. Like rib cage. Right. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Really awesome design. I really love this page a lot. And then we cut to Daimyo tearing himself out of the body bag, which I think is another great panel. There's just so much motion and just like shock. Yeah. Um, Well, the transition. It's very cinematic. He's cutting himself out of the bag as the Jaguar's opening his mouth. And then, oh, like you said, yeah. like that would be what he sees as he's cutting it yeah. open. And then, like you said, just the movement and the, just the. It's hard to describe. The, yeah. The, yeah. It's oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The it's visceral. Mm. It's visceral. And I love this beat where they're just totally speechless yeah. after he tells them that they just all look at him in silence. <laughs> if I'd huh. have known this story, I would shut you up. I'd have told it a long time ago. Yeah. Also, like, when uh, he does rip himself out of the body bag, you look like the damage on his face goes down further. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, he was bleeding out, too, as well. That might be gore. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but you're right. He's probably got more damage underneath his... um Underneath his uniform. But like you even see like on his face, there's still scar tissue there and all that. Yeah. The last part, the death dream. What do you make of it, Johan asks. Death dream, Daimyo asks. You got a name for it? But I guess you had one, too. Uh, Quite a few, actually, Johan answers. Back with Kate and Tiri, who we can assume is really the Marquis at this point. You can also see the griffin um, a little better. And then behind it, you can see something that kind of looks like a manticore. Yeah. A manticore has the head of a lion. And I thought that kind of looked like a lion's skull. I don't really know if that's the right animal, but that's kind of what it what I thought it to be. He tells Kate that he wanted her there for a reason. You wanted, Kate asks. The Marquis says that he's a collector. I own things other men can only dream about and the things beyond their capacity to dream. The Marquis says he has always paid for the privilege of ownership, and most will tell you I paid dearly. And he pulls out the Flama Reconditus, the secret fire, a true record of the workings of the universal machine, of the nature and function of celestial bodies, the transmutation of metals, and the creation and reconstruction of living things. I am fucking in. Yeah, and on the cover to this book, if you look at it closely, at the very top, there's like the a cup of a, the fire. The cup of fire. And so remember yes. in Almost Colossus when they found Roger in that old dusty room, there was a goddess and she was holding that cup of fire. Mm-hmm. And then it even made me to go a little further, it made me think of the little implement that Liz used. Mm-hmm. That little shape, it kind of looks like a cup. You could you oh, it, yeah. you could maybe see that it's a cup of fire or something like that. It kind of resembles that a little bit. Down at the bottom, the crest looks like a bird. Yeah, it does. It does. It does. That's a very nice cover of the book. And if you look in the sketchbook, Mignola designed that cover, I believe. 
Well, the even the fire around the cup also has a bird-like shape. With yeah, the yeah, it does. Yeah, almost like a phoenix. And who has the fire stuff? It's Liz. Yeah, it's Liz. It's Liz. And how did Roger become alive? The fire from Liz. Sure. Oh man, we're getting into it now. Now the Marquis says, "Let's talk." Chapter three. Kate asks the Marquis if he is suggesting bartering for the book with something that she has. Did I say that, he says? Your people have accurately assessed the value of this tome. You know all about it, yes? Kate says that it was written by Any Herit in the first millennium. I couldn't find a reference to Any Herit, but the name Any Herit is Egyptian, and it means he who brings back the distant one. Would it be Harit? Harit? I don't even know how to pronounce that. If it's Egyptian. I might be saying that wrong. I have no idea. I but don't know. Kate says the book is a transcription of the Emerald Table. And so there is an Emerald Tablet. It's also known as the Smaragdine Tablet or the Tabula Smaragdina. It is a compact and cryptic piece of Hermetica reputed to contain the secret of the Prima Materia and its transmutation. It is highly regarded by European alchemists as the foundation of their art and its hermetic tradition. The original source of the Emerald Tablet is unknown. Although Hermes Trigmestus is the author named in the text, its first known appearance is in a book written in Arabic between the 6th and 8th century. The text was first translated into Latin in the 12th century, and numerous translations or interpretations and commentaries followed. The layers of meaning in the Emerald Tablet have been associated with the creation of the Philosopher's Stone, laboratory experimentation, phase transition, the alchemical magnus opus, mystical psychosis, cosmic consciousness, the all in Hermeticism, successful child conception, out of proved pure love, the ancient classical elemental system, and the correspondence between macrocosm and microcosm. Awesome. Similitaries <laughs> and correspondences with the Emerald Tablet have been drawn with Eastern philosophies like Taoism, which would include the I, the I Ching. I Ching, fuck yeah. Hinduism and Buddhism, and even with the Book of Genesis and the Book of Isaiah in the Christian Bible. So there's all your historical fiction for that. Kate says the Emerald Table was supposedly engraved by the Greek god Hermes on a stone that fell from the head of Lucifer when he was cast out of heaven. A pretty strange mixture of pagan and Christian mythologies, if you ask me. I didn't find a reference to this specifically, but the author of the Emerald Table is named Hermes and is described as a mix of Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth, which has also been a reference in the Mignolaverse. So there's all that. But he's saying that Lucifer isn't the guy's name, that it's a mistake from like a mistranslation or something. And, yeah, they continue to brain detail each other out. They kind of are going head to head. Kate says that the book laid bare the secrets of the universe, allegedly. (laughs) And we see Legurk, he's dusting the monsters. I like this little detail of the little guy. It's so funny the way you speak, the Marquis says, allegedly and supposedly, as if you were willing to discuss these things. But, oh, no. You don't for one moment believe any of this drivel, when in fact you've worked alongside a living example of just this kind of thaumaturgy. Excuse me? Come, Dr. Corrigan. I told you I knew you were here for a reason. You thought I didn't know what reason. This edition of the book has an addendum of any Herod's copious notes on his experiments. His work in the field of homunculi generation and restoration is seminal. You know this, and I certainly do. In fact, 
one of his early homunculus is in this very room with us. And we see Legurk, he's dusting this like cabinet with a human shape on it. I just want to comment on like her um, using allegedly and supposedly in the way he just kind of dismisses her not being able to believe in it. But I think that's that's just wrong because he, as a historian or a scientist, you sure. would use words like yeah. allegedly, supposedly, because you don't want to make assumptions and jump to conclusions without all the evidence. Right, exactly. You're, so, you're, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like he's the one misreading what she's saying. It's language, like, well, language yeah. is important, and she actually doesn't have the same firsthand knowledge that he has. So True. he's like, oh, you're so dumb. But like, well, she doesn't have this weird cabinet full of stuff, dude. Like she doesn't, of yeah. course she's going to use that language. Yeah. And it's just, <laughs> I mean, it, to me, it just seems like the yeah. language of somebody who is a yeah. historian or, you know, scientist. I agree 100%. Like yeah. And then of course he reveals all these homunculi in here. Yeah. And I think this is a nice little, it's kind of a misdirection because he says, one of the very early homunculi is in this very room with us, and it focuses on Legurk. Yeah. So it, it makes us think that Legurk is one of the homunculi, but then he's like, here, among my collection. And so he opens it to reveal that he's got all these other homunculi in right. there. But, you know, there's going to be a payoff with Legurk earlier, sure. which I didn't see coming because yeah. I thought he was one of the homunculi yeah, also. same. It's great. Yeah, so I really like that. I love being surprised by a story. And yeah. we, see, uh, we see in the cabinet he's got all these misshapen you know, homunculi bodies. I'm so grateful. Just a little aside, I'm so grateful for stories that can surprise me, that yeah. can make me feel shock and awe and make me laugh and make me cry, make me upset, make me angry, make me curious. I want to be curious, man. I yeah. want to be like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And so few stories now. It's just all this like regurgitation like oh we're, we're, we're gonna redo this story we're gonna redo this exact same movie over again it's a remake it's another remake and you're gonna watch it and it's like man i'm so tired of like it's not a, being surprised and not being and sometimes not even a absorbed remake. yeah exactly <laughs> i'm so i'm sick of not being able to be absorbed in something totally creative right. and so i just yeah hat tip to all these fucking amazing creators and, and he's showing Kate all the homunculi he has in there. He talks about that he has an Atlantean homunculi and different types. And he pulls out this mortar and pestle. And he says it's from the study of Edel Mitras. How would you say that? Miss, Miss Edel Misrase? I don't know. Say it again. Adele Misrase. Okay. I have no idea how you would pronounce that. That was and, my and, best guess. I and, don't and know. This is actually one I couldn't find um, a pronounce.com sure, or whatever yeah. for. I couldn't find one for this name. The other names I tried to look up, but this one I, I like couldn't Like this guy's find. name is just French. This name, I don't know what it's from, so I right. have no idea. And so we've seen this name before. We talked about it a little bit in Almost Colossus, I believe. He's the creator of Roger and the other right. homunculi, the the one that turned himself into a giant, you know, uh, body made out of fat or yeah. whatever. Um, but Kate doesn't get this reference, and she just kind of looks at it. You don't know the name, Doctor. Your smug erudition fails you in this instance. And so the Marquis, he's got he's to show her how much he knows. So he tells her of this uh, master of the homunculi generation. Not so much a sorcerer or even a scientist as an artist. And he started with the notes from the Emerald Table, and he went further, creating the last great homunculus and the largest. He crafted only two of them, and they were the most perfect. And your friend Roger, is it, is the only survivor of the pair. 
Well, the other one might have survived if he hadn't turned himself into a giant human fat body, Kate says. I'm not sure if that kind of thing is my idea of most perfect. Yes, exactly, Dr. Corrigan. Your friend is the true masterpiece, the Marquis says. And you think my book will help restore him to his glory? The problem is my collection is wanting of such perfection. And now in his, let us say, reduced condition, he will fit perfectly. And we reveal that he's got a space for Roger's remains there in his cabinet with all his other homunculi. But Kate's like, no, I'm not going to trade Roger for the book. That doesn't make any sense. The book would be useless to me. Are you being willfully ignorant, doctor? The book is not part of the bargain. Your organization gives me the homunculus and you may go back to them alive. And so all the vampires kind of crowd around Kate. And so now we realize the Marquis's true plan is to hold Kate hostage for Roger's body. And you may go back to them alive. Yes, exactly. It's a very like, oh man, my evil plot is revealed. Oh. (laughs) I always expect to hear a cackle. Yeah, a little fucker. (laughs) Back at the BPRD, Daimyo tells Johan that it's his turn to share a little. We were talking about the relativism of death in our current occupations, but I, of course, developed that philosophy long before I came here, Johan says. In my previous life in Munich, the dead were not gone to me. They were with me every day. There was one time in particular the line between death and life was blurred for me. And so what did you guys think of this flashback with Johan? I thought it was really interesting uh, insight into his character, but uh, I'm not so sure I like that particular insight into his character because uh, just the way he's all like the whole falling in love with the yeah. girl and it's just like it is weird. So basically, yeah. this flashback is he's helping a man connect with his dead wife. They have some unfinished stuff that they haven't resolved. And so Johan does a seance with all these people and they're able to reconnect the wife with the husband. And Johan just starts to kind of fall for this lady's spirit as the conduit between her and the and her husband who's still alive. He keeps requesting that they do more and more seances so and not because of any benefit that they're reaching, but because he wants to see them again. Well, it's actively hurting them and preventing them from moving on. It's really messed up. And, and he's yeah. he just wants to see her. And it's there really there are some panels up. like on on the bottom of page seventy four where she's like crying and in the background he's like smiling, which is really weird. And I thought this was a really unusual choice for them to go, okay, let's show this backstory of Johan, but let's not paint him in a very favorable light let's right. kind of show that he has and that's, that's kind of one of the things i really love about this series is that he the characters flaws. aren't perfect they're, they're not yeah. perfect people and they do things that make you go uh you right. know that's kind of creepy but you know who, what i mean who amongst us has not done something exactly, disgusting yeah. and horrible and gross and had to keep living with that decision every day and 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 learn from it and grow from it and try to keep going and actually reveal it to people who don't know this information and say here i am right laid bare i did some fucked up shit man and do you still accept me and it's a very it's really you know it it adds so much depth to character but but it draws us in and draws us closer because yeah like that's something you have to deal with with people is People have complicated fucking backgrounds and people have done fucked up shit and still have to continue right. on with life. Yeah. And, and it's just, I don't ahead. know, just kind of like, you know, I mean, just the kind of guy who just like, you know, misread the signals and it's just like, dude, you know, 
you're trying to help this dude with his wife and his dead wife in there. You know, no, she didn't fall in love with you, dude. It's just, but I hope that he learned and grew and grew right. from it. You know, he obviously didn't just, he has because he's yeah. a different person now. You know, yeah. And there's this part that cuts back to the team, and Daimyo says, "So what you're saying is you fell in love with this guy's dead wife? That it? That's just insane, pal. You know that, right? Right?" And it cuts to like Abe for a second because he's in love still with Edith Howard, who is his dead, yeah, who is Call's dead wife. Anyway. And so, but this, and, and Daimyo has kind of a little smirk on his face. He turns to Liz and he's like, come on, anyone? Right, right, right. right? And she's right, like, it's okay, Johan, go ahead. And Johan even says, my behavior became very unprofessional, but I couldn't help it. And so he calls him in for one last session. He calls him in for more sessions. And so it went for several sessions. Senka told the major all the deep secrets she had. She poured out her soul to him. She was honest and sincere. She had a depth of heart greater than any woman I have known. It was wonderful, as they're all crying and being yeah. tortured he's and everything. Saying it's wonderful, and yeah, like you said, their expressions are just, in, they're in agony. And so finally, Pavio tells uh, Johan that he doesn't want to do it anymore. Can't you understand? Alone, I can eventually overcome the despair, but no man can overcome death. And so he leaves Johan, and then Johan has this moment with his wife where the wife knows what's kind of going on, sure. too. And she just kind of walks away from him. So one last time, Johan goes in there just to talk to Senka. And there it was, I thought my chance. And he tells her that Pavio's not here. You can touch me. And so she rejects him. And she's very upset by this. She says, your gift has made you an abomination, a living man who seeks love amongst the dead. You are too sad to hate. And we just see Johan left there, yes. sitting at the seance table. Wow, some mouth on her, Daimyo says. It was not my first confrontation with death, obviously. But in a way, it was my first confrontation with life, Daimyo finishes. Oh, for God's sake, Daimyo, Liz says. Forget about him, Johan. I see what you're saying in this case. Love transcended death for them and for you. It's very sweet and sad. And Johan suggests Liz share her thoughts. And Daimyo eggs her on. Yeah, Sherman. Uh, it's great. And I love Liz's face. Her face this. is great. <laughs> She's like, oh, she doesn't want to have to do any of I this. I love you it. Tell. This is fantastic. Back in France, Devon contemplates calling the Bureau to tell them that he lost Kate. And the town people approach and start to crowd around him. What these, the? I'm sorry, but like <laughs> these two pages uh, here, this one and the next one, I actually gasped right. out loud. <laughs> Out loud, they're so well done. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he knows that it's night, and there's a full moon above, and then around him, instead of the townspeople, they're all wolves now. That's great. And so they talked about werewolves in the legend also, and all this kind of stuff. I The pacing here, I actually gasped. I was like, oh, it's just so good. I love it. Back with Kate and the Marquis. He asked her if she's thinking about his proposal. If you mean your threat, so much for f the philosophy of paying dearly for your collection. The Marquis says it will cause dearly to wrest her life from the parasites. And Kate tries to stand up and ask a question, but they all push her back down. I like that little pacing right there. And he's like, ask it sitting down, please. I like the look on her face. It's more annoyed than... Uh, yeah. She's all like... She's kind of mad. That's great. I love that you that that is the note that I had. She's yeah. I I like she doesn't seem scared. She's she pouting. just seems annoyed by yeah. the whole thing. She's yeah, it's an annoyed I, pout. I love that you said that, Aubrey. That is so funny. It's great. Kate asks if she does hand over Roger's remains, will the Marquis restore him to life? Of course not, he says. What possible use could I have for a living homunculus? It wouldn't even fit in my cabinet. 
So he's just like, all he cares about is his collection, right? And um, I think that's such a funny response as to say, it wouldn't even fit with my stuff. I had a mission coming here, and it wasn't to complete your collection, Kate says. Yes, your goals conflict with mine. It is a fact of life that we cannot always have what we seek out, but if we are wise, we can adapt and succeed. So, Doctor, how wise are you? And Kate just crosses her arms. She doesn't say anything. So stubborn, Doctor, the Marquis says. Are you gambling that I will be the one who will adapt? And he starts to flip through his book some. And he asks Kate, what are we to do? What compromise could possibly merit discussion? And he puts a little bookmark in there and he turns around and looks at Kate. I'll tell you what, Doctor. You can have the book. It's yours. Take it. Take it back to your homunculus. And he hands over the secret fire to, to Kate. I leave you to walk out of here with all my blessings for great success. And all that I require of you is your fish man. And we reveal that in his book, where he's bookmarked, there's like a some sort of fish god drawn in there or something like that. What do you guys think of that? Dude needs to stop thinking of Roger and Abe as fucking objects. It, right. <laughs> it's really weird and interesting. But yeah, as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, man, what's yeah. going to fucking happen? What are they going to do? And I had no idea where this is going. You right, know, that's yeah. I love it. And so the chapter four cover, I just, this is one this of my favorite rocks. covers. One of this my favorite cover covers rocks. of all time. We've got the cup of fire in the background, and then we've got Hellboy, Abe, and Liz, and then the remains of Roger on the bottom. And Great these, cover. And these guys. Yeah, the skulls. We saw those flame skulls in the Baba Yaga's house, or something similar to that. Yeah. Uh, I'll admit, like, I. After the end of this chapter, I kind of skipped past the cover real fast because I'm like, I got to know what's going on next. <laughs> and I totally missed uh, Hellboy on the cover. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing I saw. I was like, fucking Hellboy, why is he on the cover? Why? What's going to happen? Back with Devon, he backs himself into the phone booth at the wolves surround him. This is such great pacing, these next few pages. Yeah. It's such great pacing and, and, and illustration. And as he closes himself in the phone booth, one of the wolves stands up <laughs> and it talks to him. You want her back. And he's like, what? <laughs> the woman, we will return her, but you must bring us the remains of the homunculus or the fish man. This is the greatest comic I've ever read. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the greatest thing I have ever seen. It's so fucking good. He's, and Devon's like, you mean Abe? You want to trade it for Dr. Corrigan? The homunculus or the fish man, the wolf says. And Devon says that he can't make any of the decisions. And the wolf says, then speak with the ones who can. And the phone immediately starts ringing. I gotta say, I, I love the fact that you know the, the werewolf surrounding him, get him in the phone booth, pop up, and then just start. Okay, so That's here, great. here's the deal. We're gonna do this. <laughs> so I can't make funny. deals. Well, you talk to the people that can make yeah. deals. <laughs> it's super good. I can hear his voice too, being just like, just really like gravelly and yeah. out of out of place, and it's very, it's just very um, counterintuitive. Yeah. I love that. I can. I would love to have a voice actor just be totally going overboard with the wolf voice on it i love it <laughs> back at the bprd liz tells her story liz is a young girl and she's being put to bed by her babysitter jenny at 8 p.m the door soon opens and her brother will comes in and he brings along their dog bruno i like this little thing because that is something that you would do with one of your siblings yeah. you're like hey we're gonna sneak up 
away from the babysitter. And look, I'm gonna bring the dog in here yeah, too, and yeah. all this kind of stuff. And she had like a brother, and yeah, it's nice to see this. Of Will, course, that niceness is very quickly right. undercut by some fucked up shit. But. Well, Will says, "I know they don't want me seeing you right now," and he mentions Liz has been weird lately. Liz says that it's the place; everything seems different at night. Will agrees and says, "It's not like the old house. It's creepy." I mean, geez, Liz says, I thought I was going crazy or something. You're not going crazy and stop saying geez, Will says. I like that little line. I don't know. Like, yeah. Cause- if you've ever I know you had siblings like I had like when you're oh, when yeah. your sibling starts doing something annoying yeah you're just like stop doing that and like that would definitely <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely happen with me and my brothers I just like that little where he That's goes great. and stop saying geez yeah it makes me laugh but I do feel a little crazy like maybe there's something else here besides us you know as young Liz is talking this hooded skeleton starts to appear over her wait a minute who doesn't want you seeing me right now and the skeleton reaches out to Kate and she screams and runs out of the room I like the way the the hand is on her and you can it's definitely translucent because yeah. you can see the hair through the fingers yeah, and the, yeah you're uh, right the, the, colorist, like the, shirt. the yeah. colorist did a good well yeah. I keep saying the colorist he is the colorist Dave the Stewart, mighty Dave Stewart the mighty Dave Stewart Love Dave Stewart. Liz runs out of the room and a burning one-armed skeleton starts to come up the stairs. And the other skeleton is coming behind her as well, you can see. And Will runs up. Lizzie, Liz, what's wrong? Take it easy, sis. Don't you see them? Don't you see them, Liz says. Will turns around. See who? You mean mom and dad? And then he's all... I love that reveal, too. It's very cinematic to me. Yeah, yeah. It exactly. would be like a... It would be a jump scare in a horror movie yeah. or something like that. There it's would really be like good. a... There would be one of those... Like the musical beat yeah. to like scare you. And then poor Bruno is also a skeleton as well. Yeah. And Liz screams out, Jenny! And we reveal she's in her observation room that we saw like in Hollow Earth. And Jenny, in a containment suit, cradles Liz. I'm here, sweetie. I'm right here. It's good to... Because, you know, um, before we never, you know, like the people like would freak out, like if they even touched her, like in that flashback we saw, like issues and issues ago. It's nice to see that at least one of them is trying to comfort right. her. Right. Okay, yeah. but she's still in a fucking suit. She's in a fire suit. No, she's no, still no, in no, a no. Weird I, suit. I'm, not, I'm not saying it's perfect. No, yeah, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. It's getting there. It's yeah. getting there. I mean, of course, the, the fire suit could have been mandated by, uh, uh, that's true. by that's the people true. higher up. That's and all true. That. I like how Hellboy was like, man, fuck that shit. I'm going in there. Right. But, but yeah, like she, you know, maybe they don't know. She can't control it yet, maybe. And so that she has to take precautions. But she's still, like you said, she's still being very loving and supportive and hugging her. At least she's not running away and, and right. whatever. And But that room is so bare and cold. It's literally just a hospital bed. An empty table. There's nothing else in there. There's right. no color. There's no like little drawings hung up on the wall or anything. Or There's toys no toys. Or anything, it's yeah. just a bare, it's cold a room. Sterile observation. Yeah. Bareness. Yeah. Poor Liz. Back in the present, Daimyo is disappointed. That doesn't count. That was a dream. <laughs> Liz says it was more than that. And Johan says, more likely a visitation. The spirits of your family reaching out to help you move on. When I came to the BPRD, Liz says, I couldn't remember anything and nobody told me. It wasn't until that day that I was able to accept that my parents and my brother were really dead. Were dead? Daimyo stands up to get more coffee. You mean like just happened somehow? Dead? But don't you think everyone has to face reality eventually? In this case, the way your folks got dead? That's a really fucked up thing to throw in her face. I know it is. Because she's a child and she couldn't control what was happening to her. And that is like the single most traumatic event of her life. Don't you think she would obviously have preferred for that to not happen? Like... That is yeah. a really fucked up thing for him to come out with. 
He was being nice to her earlier when he was like, poor Roger's dead, but now they're facing off again. I love these two panels where they're just looking at each other. Yeah. And she's like, you know, Captain, one of these days, I swear, I'm going to kick the living Abraham, Johan, interrupt. <laughs> we haven't heard from you yet. <laughs> I love how he breaks that That's tension. That's great. It's great. I could definitely see that in a TV show, too. Yeah. Oh. Johan references how Abe was stabbed by the priest in the Plague of Frogs, and we get a nice little recap of that. But he's barely spoken of it. And so this made me realize, like, Abe is having a flashback, and he's remembering what happened at the end of Plague of Frogs and and all that stuff, how he saw his origin. But I realized, like, they're talking about how he was stabbed. They don't know about Call and all this other stuff They don't yet. know all these experiences, no. and he's looking at all of this stuff happening in his mind and it's just he's like no and I, yeah gonna... and i like how johan also mentioned it's been two years since that's happened you know? right. oh, wow like, yeah wow. for us that was like what three four episodes ago? Sure. yeah it was a couple <laughs> weeks and we get some different angles on that i like seeing um some different angles on some of those scenes but yeah abe says no but if what you want is a sad ghost story and then we have Yay! abe's flashback i'll let you guys talk about this one what oh boy Hell what what did you think of Abe's flashback here? Man, oh, it was so nice seeing Hellboy again. But then, <laughs> oh, Daryl. Yeah, so we see Hellboy, I and like I like him. the way Guy Davis draws Hellboy. Yeah. He's, he's got a good style with Hellboy, and so... How fun would that be for Guy Davis to be like, I get to draw Hellboy? Yeah, mm -hmm. so, this is and cool. I like Abe and his... Um, parka or whatever yeah. with the hood up I, I just like him in that costume but they find some remains of somebody and hellboy thinks it's puke i love the delivery on that though it's very everyone's trying to decide what's going on what to do i think it's puke yeah i can hear um i can hear uh oh, ron perlman yes i can hear ron, Pol or ron perlman's voice or david harbour maybe I can, yeah for sure i can hear ron perlman or i mean absent ron perlman which of course i would never want ron perlman did do hellboy's voice in uh the animated stuff, sure did he not yeah, so, which was did. great and perfect a hundred percent i will say that is perfect but if you ever needed a substitution i would say that um David oh Harbour? No. Uh well yeah, but I would I, I hear it as um I hear it as Ron Perlman, but I could also hear it as um as Adventure Brothers. As uh Uh Patrick Warburton. Patrick Warburton. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could I could hear Patrick Warburton in there. I think it's puke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and Hellboy asks who lives in this abandoned house, and the the officer that they're working with says the husband went missing about a year ago. Never did find him. And so we cut to Hellboy and Abe. They put the lights on in the house and they're waiting outside and they hear a sound. Now Hellboy says it ignites all this fire. And we see this Wendigo monster in there. It's kind of like him. this Wendigo and it's got blood all over its chest. And that's right. Fire, Hellboy says. I heard you guys didn't much like the stuff. And then we get this great, what do you, this I page is just him. wonderful he's with Daryl. He's like growling and then the growl starts to turn into words. And then he's like, my name is Daryl. And then Hellboy just puts down his gun. Hi, Daryl. I love it. Yeah. It's precious. Um, several weeks back, I was like looking at some sort of BuzzFeed article and, you know, it was like blah, 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 random stuff. And then it's like, this one thing, and it was this panel, like, my name is Daryl. He's like, hi, Daryl. And it says, <laughs> and it says something like, uh, this sums up Hellboy in like two panels. Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. It, it just really sums does. it all up. It's really fantastic. I just yeah. love it so much. And, and it's just so precious to me, these these pages. And God, they I both love and hate the fact that they're able to make me feel so fucking much right. from stuff like this. I just, oh, man. 
and we've talked about this a little bit before how Hellboy is not a shoot first and no, ask questions yeah. later. He's like, you know, he's willing to give the monsters like a benefit of the doubt. He's willing to be like, hey, what's going on, guys? He also knows what a Wendigo is, and he knows that this poor guy is just trapped in this thing and it's anyway right yeah and so daryl tells his story he went out hunting and he got lost out there for days he could hear something following him every time he turned around and after the third day he um he passed out or he died and we see the shadow of a monster over him and um now he's the wendigo this isn't me he says i don't know what it is but it's not me and Hellboy confirms that it's a Wendigo. A cursed ghost pretty much only found in the Canadian woods. They wander around looking for somebody, some soul, to take their place. They need to stick someone else with the curse so they can rest in peace. A Wendigo did this to me? Daryl asks. The creature killed you. His soul escaped and yours is trapped in the body. I'm sorry. No, I'm Daryl Tynan. My wife, my kids live back there in Ananta. Actually, they moved out of that house last summer. And he's like, without me? He's got the little dialogue without also. Without me, yes. That's for the best, don't you think, Abe says. You said cursed. Why me? I never hurt anyone in my life. I don't know. Bad luck, Hellboy says. They usually target murderers. Some myths link them to cannibalism, but I'm no cannibal. I'd remember that, Daryl says, but so many other things I don't. I can't live like this. I can't. You have a gun. Kill me. And he points to Hellboy's gun. And Hellboy says it won't work. The only way to set your soul free would be to let you go out there and kill somebody else. But we can't let you do that. And I love that pacing, too, how we see that they've yes. got him in the BPRD and they're pulling into the yeah. headquarters. So you get an idea of what's happening this here. This next page is like the saddest. It's so fucking sad. They, How are they able to make me feel so much right from just these few panels it's just so expressive and oh it's very tragic daryl says he's already forgetting everything he's going to forget everything his family he's going to forget the man he was and hellboy's just like yeah we're really sorry and they give him a picture of his family and he just sits in his little cell so sad. Yeah, and they and I like the little picture in this giant monster's hand, like there's just a yeah. little, just a little delicate envelope, and how he pulls it out to look at it. And the way that he's all, you know, kind of squished up in the corner, looking at it, and just the expression on his sweet little face. Oh. So a little bit about the Wendigo. Um, definitely go read that article on Mignolaverse.com. It's got more information than I do. For sure. Well, there's also a. Um, I don't know if anyone listens to. This podcast called Stuff You Should Know, but they did an episode oh, on the yeah. Wendigo too, which was really cool. In Algonquin folklore, the Wendigo is a mythical man-eating monster or evil spirit native to the northern forests of the Atlantic coast and the Great Lakes regions of the United States and Canada. The legend lends its name to the controversial modern medical term Wendigo psychosis, described by psychiatrists as a culture-bound syndrome with symptoms such as an intense craving for human flesh and fear of becoming a cannibal. Indigenous communities, environmental destruction, and insatiable greed are also seen as a manifestation of Wendigo psychosis. The Wendigo is part of a traditional belief system of a number of Algonquin-speaking peoples, including the Ojibwe. According to Basil Johnson, an Ojibwe teacher and scholar from Ontario, he describes the Wendigo as gone to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion of ash gray of death, its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. 
The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinherited from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition. And so I kind of liked, uh, I thought it was interesting to read that because that's kind of their their depiction. Yeah. Usually when I've seen a Wendigo, it looks like a big Sasquatch. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's usually how I've seen it in comics and other uh, media. And here they kind of go with this more Ojibwe depiction of it, which I thought was really cool and interesting. And like I said, Tom Hardman's article covers much more on the subject, including how Wendigos were also seen as beings made up of winter ice and wind, and how Tom Hardman thinks that you could defeat the Wendigo curse. I like his solution. Hint, it involves getting plastered. (laughs) So go read that article. It's really good stuff. After Abe tells his Wendigo story, the team sit in silence again. But uh, no stories about you, huh? Daimyo asks. And I like this pan over to the communications room. It's it's very cinematic the way they do this. And in the communication room, they receive Devon's call. It's I thought it was interesting on both ends, the phone rang. Yeah. So on Devon's end, the phone rang. And then also on their end, the phone rang There's too. There's something very like mystical and weird going on. Devon asks for Manning. It may take a while to reach him, he's told. Can you hold a moment? I don't really know if I can, he says. <laughs> and I love this. Uh, he's just like surrounded. He's in the total darkness with just the light of the phone booth and all the wolves are around him. Chapter five. I love this cover. Oh, it's great. It's, it's great to see Kate in the Mignola style. And then we get the devil and we get the sun and the moon. Here's that depiction of the fish man also. There's a tetragrammaton thing yeah. here. We've seen that before in Dr. Karp's experiment. And here, the BPRD team meets with Manning. Abe has volunteered to be traded for Kate. So I like how they're like, and no, Abe, you can't, you you know, we're not going to trade you. Liz thinks that they should be coming up with a plan of attack. And so this goes along with what we've seen from Liz so far. She's just like, burn everything down. (laughs) Manning says he's already sent a team out there. But they're not even sure where Kate is. They might have to look at trading away the remains of Roger. And Johan slams his hands on Manny's desk. Nine, you keep writing Roger's obituary, but he is not dead. You can't do this to him. Manning says, we're just talking. And I like how they reveal Devon's been on hold this entire time. He clicks him over. He's like, (laughs) so they're having this conversation and poor dude is stuck in the telephone booth this whole time. And they tell him to stall. And so there's a great beat right there where he's like, he talks to the wolf. He's like, we'll have an answer soon, very soon, okay? And the wolf just looks at him. He's like, okay. That's great. Back with Kate and the Marquis. The Marquis is growing impatient. He says his offer won't wait forever. And one of the vampires approaches Kate and says, time flies. That's what that little French dialogue is there. And the vampire also tosses the bird on the plate that they were poking at over I to can Kate. Look at this. And we see three utensils. So that's an important little detail. When they toss it over to Kate, we see like three little utensils there. Have I overestimated your worth to your employer? The Marquis asks. And I like these two panels where the vampires crowd her and then she's like, back off. It's not feeding time yet, you freaks. And this is where I put that note that Aubrey had put also. She seems more annoyed than afraid by any of this. Well, and when she slams her hand down, she yeah. slams it down yes. on a very specific place. And you see there is um, there is a lot of attention um there's a lot of not attention. Um, there's a lot of emph- Do- there's a lot of emphasis put on the fact that she's slamming her hands down on the table. There's a little thing that says wham. Yeah. The plate moves. Her hand is down in a really specific position. 
And then obviously when her hand comes back up, her hand is hidden from view. And there's another close up on this horrible, horrible thing that I don't want to talk about. But there's only two utensils left. Right. So. And so did you get that detail the first time or did you have to? Because I had never picked that up. No, because I did not want to look at that at all. Oh, so okay. I didn't actually pick up on that. One of the vampires, Monsieur Bolden, grabs Kate. And the Marquis says, step back. Yeah, you heard him, Kate says. No, Marquis, you haven't overestimated my worth. What did you expect when you put Agent Devon in charge of negotiations? He's just a kid. They're going to want to talk to me. Only I can make the deal. You, the Marquis asks. Ah, now this calls for a drink. Legurk the wine. Or should I be suspicious of this sudden change of heart? I came here on a mission, Kate says, to get this book and revive Roger. Whatever it takes to achieve that objective, I'll at least try. One friend for the other? Yes, the Marquis asks. But will the fishman come willingly? Look, he's the one you really want, right? But if I negotiate, I'm pretty sure I can deliver him alive, Kate says. I make no promises after that. So I let you walk out of here. Is that it? But once you leave, what hold do I have over you? My being here isn't doing you any good, Kate says. For one thing, I don't fit into your collection. And we see Legurk coming with the wine. I'm sure my solemn vow isn't enough for you. So here, keep the book, Kate says. You know I'll come back for that. And I assume you'll keep Agent Devon. That way, even if I don't come back, you'll really be in no worse off than you are now, right? And so she hands the book back to the Marquis. And she sticks her hand out to shake his hand. Yes, yes, this proposal satisfies me, he says. Though I am sure you are a lady of your word. More like a woman of action, Kate says. And we reveal that she has the knife and she cuts off the Marquis's fingers. I thought that was really, cr I was, I did was, not see that coming yeah. at all when I first read this. And he kind of, he slaps her away with the book. The Marquis isn't hardly phased by having his fingers cut off. I like how he just says, I'll have new ones grown in a jar before the Sabbath. Though that will be long after you are dead, he tells Kate. Yeah, well, while you're at it, Marquis... Try regrowing one of these, and I we sh we face. show that he's got the she's got the ring, uh, the finger with the ring on it, and he drops the book. He's just totally shocked by this, and all the vampires in Legurk are also stunned. And I like how Legurk starts salivating yeah. at the at the sight of that. How could you be so stupid as to flaunt this? Did you think I wouldn't recognize one of King Solomon's nine rings? especially the one he used to command devils to build the Temple of Kukara. When Pope Sixtus V expunged the curse you put on Abelben in 1491, he wore this ring just as you said. The Cathedral of Sauvignon was mysteriously built overnight under Sixtus' supervision less than two months later. Did you think I wouldn't know all that? Or did you think I was just too stupid to put two and two together? Doctor, wait, listen to me, the Marquis says. Oh, shut up, Kate says, and she throws the ring over to Legurk, and he just snatches it up in his mouth. I like that little motion. And so uh, before we go on, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. We discuss Solomon and his rings and him building the temple in the Bride of Hell, and he was actually able to also capture Asmodeus during that time, too. So we're getting some, you know, that's some nice little continuity. Yeah, that's that's kind of the first, that's immediately what I thought of. When awesome. I, when I yeah. That. And then the uh, Guy Davis gets really dramatic on this next page. I think I even like just the first panel of the, as soon as he eats it, this transformation is very dramatic. The colors are so, it's just really good. 
Yeah, and he go, and I like how he goes. Yes, I'm oh, sorry. I meant I meant Dave Stewart, but obviously, you know, guy, yeah. Dave, guy, guy Davis gets real dramatic too. But yeah, but Dave Stewart really goes to town here, and I love. Oh that yeah, so yeah. Much. The transition over to the red and the fire. Well, and it's everything. just it's just very dramatic. It's yeah, the only yeah. word I can. Yeah, but I really yeah, and he just freaks out, and yeah, I love this. Legurk transforms into the demon Marchosius. In demonology, Marchosios is a great and mighty Marquis of Hell, commanding 30 legions of demons. In the Ars Goetica, the first book of the Lesser Key of Solomon, he is depicted as a wolf with griffin wings and a serpent's tail, spewing fire from his mouth. But at the request of the magician, he may take the form of a man. And It's another Marquis of Hell wielding 30, arm- 30 legions. <laughs> oh, right, just like Shax that we saw yeah. in um, The Soul of Venice. Good one, Aubrey. I like his little witty... Little snappy come back here. More yeah. wine, Marquis. Yeah, exactly. Because he was Legurk serving the little wine. I like that. And he goes, Well reasoned woman, I have been this worm slave for hundreds of years. Me. me. But I like how he tell, calls yeah. Kate well reasoned woman. Well, I, I don't know if that's if he's if he's telling her that that was well reasoned woman. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, well, you're there, right. You're a, right. There's a comma there, so it'd be like well reasoned woman although yeah, yeah. It, it's still cool if you read it the other way it still works no you're oh, right yeah, it's yeah. still good have you heard the name marchosius once the ruler of the seventh throne in heaven now a prince in hell a prince not taken alone here is my princess Oblifica. Oblifica. now the movement here in this transformation on this final panel just the movement is fucking awesome right it as it, all the so tentacles yeah. and everything and so the poor little bird that the vampires were stabbing at for the whole issue becomes this Oblifica goddess. No, no, dear friends, you can't leave now, she says to the vampires. I am eager to talk with you. And so she's like eating all of them um, to get her revenge on them. Awesome. Yes, princess, Marchosia said, so much to discuss. So many memories to share. So you really get the idea that they're going to really go to town on the Marquis and his vampires over the torture that they've had over them for, you know, who knows how many years. And Kate sees the book on the ground. This is her chance to go for it. I will take a thousand years to torture your life from you, he tells the Marquis. But as for your collection, and he just sets everything on fire. And like the Marquis like, my thing. Yeah. Like, is, that's how to really hurt him. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, don't just kill him. You kill what he cares about, so they just set all his stuff on fire. The movement here is so expressive. It's just so the action is so well paced. Yeah. It's so yeah, it's a really good action sequence. And I like that we cut over to the painting again, and in the painting you can see all the flames the are coming yeah. out of that of that spire. All your things, each piece of every day of your many many years gone. And I like the the movement too, like you were talking about. He kind of gestures Kate away and she flies back into this like grandfather clock and then it closes her in there. Just as she's gonna get the book too. Uh, she's like yeah. so close to reaching for it. And you really get the sense that like there's wind and everything. Kind of she's really struggling for the book and then he just waves her away. This next page is fantastic. It yeah. just keeps going. This action shot is just it's masterful. And then, like, you get this close-up of all the stuff that they're doing, and then the big fucking wide shot of them just yeah. wrecking shit is incredible. And it looks like the... Isn't that his dong? <laughs> oh, yeah. Do we get some some demon dong in here? 
I also see like it looks like the bird Blifica is swallowing up those vampires yeah, too, and or like something. Yeah, breathing fire, and then you just get this big like yeah. you know you following from the the previous page, you follow along, and all this stuff is happening, and then you get to it, and they're 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 just wreaking havoc and all this destruction, and then the final panel of them just standing over right, yeah, there triumphing over all this stuff is just ah so fucking cool and here's another part where you go okay well who's the real bad guy right right because it's like i'm happy that these demons got out i'm like yay (laughs) you know yes destroy the marquee and his vampires and burn all his shit that's great but you're also like rooting for demons of hell also so it's kind of like yeah Uh, yeah we've talked about that a lot outside a storm rages all around devon taking up the wolves and the whole town Lightning comes down and destroys all. And so this made me think of the first story that Kate told. You yeah. know, when the townspeople came. It's the same. They uh, they came to, with all their pitchforks, and a giant storm destroyed the castle. Then the town was rebuilt from the ruins of the castle. Mm. So now, instead of lightning coming down to destroy the castle, it comes down and destroys the whole town. And so I thought that that was really cool. That was a really good parallel. And again, this was something that I didn't think about the first time I read it. It wasn't until this reading that I was like, oh, okay, I'm I'm getting this now. Well, I got the the whole lightning from the beginning connecting, but I didn't think about it in the connection with the, the town being built from the castle. And yeah. that's that little tidbit that Kate was trying to throw out in the beginning. So mm-hmm. all her, all her, they, they just set it up really well in the details. So good. We cut to Devon in the ruins. He said the storm only lasted a few minutes and the crew looked for Kate. Still no sign of her. And then we hear this clock bonging. I like the idea that this clock starts bonging, and they're like, over here, they stand up the clock, and she just tumbles out. It's the only object with two pieces of wood still fit together yeah. in the entire thing, so it's like... And and I just also love the motion as she falls down. Yeah. You really get the sense that they she just tumbles out of the thing. Yeah. It's very well... It's very cinematic. It's like they, they set the clock up, open the door, and she just flops right out. Right. Up. One week later in Colorado, Kate tells the team how close she was to getting the book. And we see it looks like she broke her arm, too. Um, I like that she's got some battle damage. (laughs) Battle damage. Manning says, that Demon King did you a favor. Marquis, you mean, Kate says. What's that, Abass? Kate says she called himself a prince, but according to War now, he's just a marquee in hell. I like how Kate still has to, <laughs> actually, she yeah. still has to be like, even to Manning, she's like, no, that's not right. I'm going to correct you. I wonder, because he that demon did refer to himself as prince and to the other demon as princess, I wonder if that's maybe some sort of a hint that like, yeah, things continue to happen mm-hmm. in hell. Sure. There is... There is a history, yes, but then that also implies that there is a future and that time is not uh, static down there, that stuff continues to develop and that things happen and developments occur and that a marquee is now a prince or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I have no fucking idea, but that's all yeah. I can speculate, sure. I guess. But he was trapped by um, by the one guy. Uh, the, the marquee? Yeah, the marquee for like hundreds of years. So yeah. Maybe he just refers to himself as a prince. But, I uh, but I mean, maybe he did get a promotion right before he got captured. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, it could be. I don't know. So We have one, no idea of like the timeline is like eons right. compared to ours. Anyway, sorry, John. No, just one super nerdy detail. So when Kate gives her little, um, when she drops her little trivia, it says on the bottom, the little footnote is the Theological Journal, Volume 13, Oxford, 1912. 
there is actually a journal of theological studies from Oxford, and its volume 13 was published in 1912. Interesting. Interesting. I couldn't find an article by Warnell in that volume, though. Right. Yes, I looked. <laughs> I'm sure lying isn't the worst thing he ever did, Les says. So what's next? And Manning says that, the o- that that was the only copy of the book. He's not sure anything is next. So that's it? That was Roger's last hope? Well, I know one guy who's not giving up yet, and we see Johan again with Roger, just like we saw at the end of The Black Flame, and we see that, you know, I had theorized maybe he was communicating with Roger, maybe it's because I had already read this, but we do see that that is what he's doing. This transition is amazing. His ectoplasm goes into Roger's porthole, and then what did you guys think of this? I audibly yelped. I freaked out. Yeah. You immediately yeah. know when like, you turn ah! that page, you immediately see that it's Mignola. And so this was, I mean, as as you're reading it month to month, and I'm sure even you guys reading it and becoming invested in the story, and you turn, you're not ready for it. No. No. Yeah. It makes it that much more, you know, touching. And so Johan enters this space and there's all these kind of contorted bodies or statues. Well, they're all homunculus. Yeah. They have those little rings. And... Oh, yeah, they do. You're right. They're missing ports. And Johan says, Johan wonders why he's still in his ectoplasmic form. This is the only you I've ever known, Johan. I wouldn't recognize you any other way. You do still linger then. Why? Why haven't you gone on? Gone on? I'm not human, Johan. Where is there for me to go? Then come back to us. Come alive again, Johan says. After my accident, the BPRD made me this suit to contain my spirit. Surely there's a similar solution for your case. I don't want that. This place suits me better. And we reveal Roger. And he's in a really green place, all these plants. Yeah. And he's sitting next to a statue of Closina. Maybe he's holding a round toy. Really Yes, and it's just really beautiful. I just love this page right here, how he's sitting, his posture and everything. And the tone goes from this cold gradually to this warmer and all the warmth in these panels. And I just, I love the way Johan is depicted. It's all very, um, these pages are full of so much expression. It's, it, I, I got choked up reading. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. This is where you get choked up. Everybody thinks that at the end of the Black Flame is where you're going to get choked up. But this is the part where they like really hit you over the head with this stuff. And it's uh, having Mignola come back to do these pencils is a big part of that, I think. Sure. I'm happy here, Roger says. It's peaceful. No enemies I need to kill. I didn't like all that killing. I didn't like how easy it became for me. Don't tell Captain Daimio that. I think it would hurt his feelings, and I do like him. I thought that was so sweet. Yes. (laughs) I got really choked up with these panels, how the dialogue is so simple, and it's just, it really gets to the heart of the matter, and there really is no other way to speak in a place like this, and it's, um, it really, it really got me. Yeah. And he goes, well... I like, how, um, I like how he says he, he doesn't he didn't like the killing and it reminds me of um almost Colossus when we first kind of meet him and Hellboy had to go yeah. get him so he could um you know revive Liz and all that and he did talk about not wanting to be a killer. You're right. Yeah. Great callback there. Yeah, he was like, I don't want any part of this, just leave me alone. And so Roger says, I do like him, I just don't want to be like him. I like all my friends. You were so good to me. I'll miss you. We'll miss you, Roger, Johan says. Are you sure there's nothing I can do? And then this one panel where he yeah. like thinks for a little bit. I really like that. 
He goes, I know I'm not a man. Do you think it's possible that you could bury what's left of me in the earth like a man? Yes, yes, it will be done. You have my word, Johan says, and they shake hands. Goodbye, Roger says. And Johan just kind of goes back into back out into the real world. And then we get this last panel. What do you guys think of that? This panel depicting Roger as a child, like, really fucking copy. <laughs> I can't, yeah. I'm not going to front like this whole scene. I was so emotional. I actually, I did get choked up. And it's, the, it. this last panel really hits me really hard. Yeah, and it's like that dream that he had that he was a little boy he's with, a, the, yeah. with the he ball. Child, and so now yeah. he's getting to, you know, maybe live out that dream. I think that's wonderful and I really love this. It's so peaceful and it's so um it's stoic and yet still warm, yeah. which is something that, you know, Manuela does so well. Yeah. And then we get the inscription at the end, Roger, born circa 1500, died <laughs> 2006. Great men are not always wise from the book of Job. 32 verse 9 the end man that just kind of sort of got me because you know i mean for me and for us i guess you know well i mean not i guess not for you john but i mean i've only known roger for like a couple months now right (laughs) but i mean i guess he was introduced in what 95 so he's been around for like over a decade before sure yeah you're right you're right but it's just like man it's just just and that's one thing I really like about a good story, like and a, and a good you know yeah. story with a good death. Like I mean, you, I'm, I'm gonna miss Roger. I mean, I really yeah. am. And it's just like you know, it's just like you feel like you got to know the characters. And but I mean, it's also life. And this that's is one how of the most unique scenes I've ever seen in in anything I've ever read or watched. I mean, it's it's so unique and it's so poignant and it's so fragile and it's such a it's 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 very singular and i think that um it was pulled off so well i can't i mean i really it really hit me hard and it's, yeah. it it really made me feel so much it's it's it was such an expressive just a few panels but it was so perfect and it really um it really made me feel a lot and that's um that's that says a lot about the storytelling it really does it also makes me think that uh that one story we read uh, where we had the Abe issue that we... That Lost we, Lives. Yeah, and uh, Roger was in that, and so that issue came out, what, 2014, something, something like that? Something like that, yeah. So it's not like Roger had already been dead for like almost a decade, and all of a sudden he just pops up. So yeah. I guess people who were reading it, like I guess in a way it was really a released order, yeah. they were like, oh shit, Roger, we haven't seen you in forever. Yeah, you, exactly, buddy. yeah. yeah. It's very sweet and sad. You know what I mean? Like, and when you're reading the story, you know, all this stuff is happening with Kate and you're getting these good little, the team is telling their stories for the B plot and all that stuff. But as you're reading it in the back of your head, at least as someone who's reading it month to month, like I was, you're like, what's going to happen with Roger? Yeah. What's going to happen? You know, and then in the, and then they don't bring him back, but it is such a good payoff still. Yeah. Like they... They don't give you what you want as a traditional comic would, but they still give you something that you go, okay, I can, I can close this chapter. Sometimes closure is important and that's something that we all have to deal with. Even in fantastical realms like this, even with, you know, they do play with, well, what's the, the whole, their whole subplot here is the, the murky muddy lines between life and death and so you're thinking oh well there's if the line between life and death is so blurry then 
you know, whatever. And so the, it is really wonderful the way it's very satisfying the way that the storyline ties up because while the def- it's definitive, like, no, Roger is gone, but yeah. however, you know, they, they really do, um, they really do him justice and they really, um, they really pay attention to the reader's connection to Roger by, by giving him this very, it's very respectful and it's very grand. Yeah. It's a very grand kind of a closure here. And so that's, yeah, I mean. And uh, yeah, it's just wonderful. And again, these Mignola pencils at the end, really, they really pull the heartstrings if you weren't already, yeah, you know, feeling emotional about it. It's just um, really beautiful couple pages. I like read these pages, I don't know how many times, yeah. you know, and it like, it tells you, okay, well, Roger's gone, you know, he's gone. This is, this is how we say goodbye to him. It does so. it in such a beautiful way, though. It's so yeah. simple, but it's such effective storytelling. And I also like how Roger's only request was to be buried like a man. He's like, I'm, he's like, I know I'm not a man, but can you bury me in the ground like a man? He wants yeah. to, you know, and it's just, he wants that, uh, I guess, tradition. He wanted to be part of that tradition. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. I like that you bring that up because there was so much about, is he human? You know, so many of the stories focused on Roger saying he's not a human or, you know, um, that kind of line is, is he really a human? Is he not? You know, well, people did not respect him and they showed yeah. him blatant disrespect constantly and hurt his feelings. And the only people who were ever really got close to him were all these fucking weirdos. Right. And like, you know, is Johan a man? Is, is Liz really a person? Is Daimyo a person? Like, are they dead or alive? Are they monsters or are they people? And so for him, to open up and re- request that, have that last request for Johan. Of course, Johan's like, yeah, totally. You know, and he he knew to trust him with that. And it's just a very, yeah. it's very simple, but it's very elegant. And it's really touching and it, it really gets you. Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit of trivia from this story. Some of the stuff I was reading, Mignola designed the castle. He designed that castle first. And Guy Davis went off of that to design um, everything else. The design of the vampires is based on Polanski's The Fearless Vampire Killers. I've, I've never seen that movie. And then Mignola des- designed the book illustrations and the book for The Secret Fire. In his notes to Guy Davis, he said that it should look like it's handwritten in ancient Arabic or Persian. And guess what? We already have some feedback on this story. <laughs> Mark awesome. Tweedell, he was uh, talking to me on Twitter and he said... I'm really looking forward to your next few discussions. The Universal Machine was a transformative arc for me. It made Kate my favorite character. And frankly, I'm probably going to get a little emotional. I find it difficult to put into words how important it is to have Kate, an ordinary woman in her 50s in this series, and kicking ass. I love her so much. And so, yeah, this was a great Kate storyline. I like that point, too, because... As you're reading it, you're like, so what are they going to do? Are they going to trade Roger for Kate? Are they going to trade Abe for Kate? No, Kate takes care of it herself. Yeah. They don't have to do any of that stuff. You know, she's just able to um, do all that on her own, take care of the situation. And um, I really like that a lot. It, this this is one of my favorite story arcs, too, because of Kate and because of her, you know, character development as we go through it. All right. That was a good one, you guys. Put your tissues away and wipe away all your tears. We'll be back next week talking about a different story. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things.
Uh, so share us your thoughts on the Universal Machines. You can send us your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter on Hellboy Book Club. Also, be sure to check out our friends at magnoliaverse.com. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. On our next episode, we'll be discussing Garden of Souls. So pull out your back issues, trades, omnibus, library editions, digitals. Go to your library, use the library app. <laughs> Hey, follow along with us next time. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Daniel. And I'm Aubrey Lowe saying, bye, Roger. Aww.